you get comments like, I would love to see the process. I'd love to see how this is made. Or even before I had a GoPro, I was doing some phone time lapses and some of that stuff. But now it's sort of, um, this is another instrument within the process, but it's not part of the making of the art, but it is because the art is now not the page with the drawing on it, but it's the video you upload to Instagram. And so this is, you know, the phone is now one of the art making tools because you're not uploading a drawing, you're uploading a video of a drawing and the video is the art piece. the Sneaky Art Podcast. I'm your host, Nishant Jain. It's been a nearly two-month hiatus since the last episode, and I hope you are duly excited for today's conversation. My original plan was to have a lineup of episodes ready to release while I was on vacation at home. Unfortunately, my plans fell apart because my laptop decided to suddenly die on me. The conversation you're going to hear today was due to release sometime in December and was recorded mid-November. Long-time listeners of the show will note that I've already spoken with Paul Heaston. In fact, Paul was the first guest on the Sneaky Art Podcast. So why am I speaking with him again? You see, over the course of 30-odd conversations, I feel like I've become a better podcaster and conversation haver. I've learned to ask better questions, I've learned to listen better, and to have a better sense for the interesting detours that conversations can sometimes take. Also, I have a much better idea of you, my listeners, and the kind of things that you like to listen to. So this means that I've done a huge disservice to my early guests, some of whom are very good friends because of my inability to take conversations to their fullest length to extract the most juice out of them, so to say. This is particularly tragic because the earliest guests are in fact the only urban sketchers that I've actually hung out with in person. So I figured it would be a good idea to have second conversations with these past guests. That's what today's episode and the next few episodes are about. I think of second conversations as natural follow-ups to the first, and this is how I've formatted them. So today we begin with the recording of the first conversation I recorded with Paul, and it was released in September 2020. Old listeners, consider it an opportunity to refresh yourself with Paul's work and our conversation. New listeners, here is a chance to learn about the inspirations of one of the most prominent artists in the urban sketching community and his rather unique professional trajectory. In case you would prefer to go to the second conversation right away, I'm putting down the timestamp in the show notes. Take a look and feel free to skip ahead. I have big plans for this new season of the Sneaky Art Podcast, ambitious ideas that make me a little nervous if I'm being honest, but I've learned that nerves are a sign that I'm doing something good. And so I move forward. To stay in the know for these ideas or to read the top discussions from this episode, this episode itself, Sign up for the Sneaky Art Post, my free weekly newsletter using the link in the show notes. Alright then, let's begin with Paul and I speaking in August 2020.
welcome all to the sneaky art podcast thank you very much for joining me this evening and i'm really really happy to be able to speak with you today well thank you for having me i'm, I'm really excited about this since you told me about it so i've been looking forward to it so paul i want to just before uh, you know instead of going slowly into it i really want to dive in with a question that that was foremost in my mind when i was following your work before i ever got to meet you in chicago for the seminar last year um and this is because i'd been following you for so long before this on the on the internet and following your work mm-hmm. and like a lot of people whose work you follow you tend to have this single dimensional image of them in your mind that this is the kind of work they do this is the way they draw so i assume these are the things that are important to them and this is how they came to draw like this but it really ignores the kind of trajectory you follow to become the kind of artist you are and it doesn't really do full justice to to how you came to be how you are so what i want to ask you is to just kind of take me through the steps of how art came into your life and how you came to finally be an urban sketcher I sure absolutely. I think it's interesting that you say that because I it's something I've also once I've known gotten to know artists that I, whose work I've only seen on the web, you are kind of confronted with this sort of static idea of what they do because it's really impossible to go through their life's work even if it's out there on the web. It's just a lot of slogging through to to kind of discover that evolution. Um so people are surprised when I say uh well I started out as a painter. Um, but even further back, I, I mean, I guess it, to be honest, I did start out drawing. I think most, most artists, uh, start out drawing and, um, my mother draws and paints. Uh, my father is a musician. Um, vocationally, my father has done lots of things. He's, um, worked as a, um, financial analyst and as a piano teacher, and now he sells pianos and my mother's done a lot of things too. um uh, cartographer um uh, briefly and then it worked uh in an advertising agency and then um various administrative roles and then decided to be a stay-at-home mother um and i was really i think just enamored of her drawing even more than my dad's piano playing when i was a v- very young child and i think because maybe it's a little bit more intuitive it's a little more tactile a little less abstract um i could come and make a mark you know on paper and for whatever reason i took to it quickly and i started making recognizable drawings early um and um and i remember at um uh, uh sort of an open house night at school when i was in kindergarten and the parents all come and see what the students are doing um and my kindergarten teacher told my parents that she thought i was a really exceptional artist um and because while well, other kids are drawing stick figures or these sort of rudimentary uh shapes for people and things like that i was drawing these sort of i don't know almost three-dimensional like very modeled looking figures um and so um and i think those things sort of snowball and when you get that positive encouragement that positive reinforcement it builds on itself and you desire that um that uh that dynamic that reaction that uh, that approval um and so you start to you know seek out those and you start to learn more and more as you as you go i just think anything that makes you do it more is uh is helping you build your skill because it's it's all about putting in those hours i think at least at first so i drew and drew and drew 
all through, you know, elementary school and middle school and high school. And um, in high school, that's when I discovered I was really also into music. And that's when I, my second big interest in my life flourished. And I started learning to play instruments and studying music a little bit more seriously. Um, And, um, but I don't think that in any way diminished my passion for, for making art and drawing or anything like that. And, um, and I found all sorts of things I wanted to make art about because I also have all these other side interests that I always get into and that they become a little, um, something I've become interested in sort of, uh, almost exclusively very intensely for a little while. Like I was into whales for a, a lot, a while in middle school and I wanted to be a cetologist so, who studies whales, you know, marine biologist. And so I was drawing whales all the time, you know, and then uh, I got into paleontology. I read Jurassic Park even before the movie came out. I read the book. Yeah, that's a great book. Yes, it is. And uh, and I was super excited about it. And um, and I got into dinosaurs really intensely. I read all the acknowledgments and the whatever that Michael Crichton wrote about. He read these all these other dinosaur books. So I went and got those books. And then I was like, I have to draw dinosaurs. So then I started to learn to draw dinosaurs, which, as you know, if you follow my work at all, every now and then a dinosaur will pop up. Um, and, uh, so that hasn't, that interest hasn't left me in 25 years or 30, 30 years. Um, so I still draw those a lot, but you know, I get very sort of, I get consumed with these little interests like dinosaurs. And then I got really into the Beatles, right? So not only was I learning to play, I had to learn to play all the Beatles songs on guitar, but then I was drawing pictures of the Beatles all the time. Uh So that was high school for me. Um, and, uh, and then ultimately it sort of, um, you know, manifested itself in, uh, a bachelor of fine arts degree in painting in at UTSA university of Texas at San Antonio. And then a few years later, I took some time off and just worked. Um, and then after that, uh, I went to graduate school at the Montana state university for, um, oil painting. So I have a master's in oil painting from there. That's that's a really interesting uh, trajectory because uh, I can see how these interests all they, they play together and like when you're very young, we're so motivated by the success we get early mm-hmm. and that joy of achievement is so addictive that it's so it's it's very easy to kind of propel yourself in one direction. Whereas when you grow up, I feel like a lot of people are very hesitant to acquire new skills when they grow up because this uh, there's a lot more memory of failing at things and you have a lot uh, you associate a lot more with lack of success than with that pure joy of achievement that you get as a child when you're when you're just creating or you're making I, I used to draw all the time when I was a child so I completely understand that especially about what you said about Jurassic Park because when the movie came out it was like a really crazy big cultural moment in India as well Everyone all over the country had just discovered paleontology, so to say. Mm-hmm. And yeah. there was a dinosaur-themed uh, park that opened up nearby. And they had these huge uh, replicas of da- various dinosaurs. And all of us learned these names and maps. And, and I remember seeing dinosaurs also the first time in Calvin and Hobbes comics. Because occasionally, yes. uh, Calvin will also draw a dinosaur just like you. <laughs> Yeah, I loved those. I loved those um, those strips where he's sort of involved in that dinosaur dinosaur fantasy, and um, and it, it, if you read those, and I have like the complete set now, 
but you can read them in chronologically. He he got passionate. Uh, Bill Watterson, the the uh, the artist, I think he got passionate about dinosaurs around the same time too. There was this sort of um, emerging excitement about dinosaurs that just before the movie Jurassic Park, and and Jurassic Park was almost sort of capitalizing on that 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 zeitgeist that. Um, um, what was happening with the, the dinosaur revolution where all these authors were coming out and saying, well, they were warm blooded and they were, you know, uh, the ancestors of birds and blah, blah, blah. And um, it's funny, uh, you should mention in India how big a cultural moment it was too, because at the same time, uh, there's a very prominent, um, I think he's passed away, but maybe not, uh, prominent Indian paleontologist, uh, Shankar Chatterjee. I'm not sure if you know, but he was a... Uh, Back at that, in those mo- in those days, there was also the big argument of whether or not they were killed by an asteroid, or there was Vulcanism, or something. Um, and he was a big advocate of the Vulcanism theory, and so there was some real polarizing in the paleontological paleontological community. There was some polarizing arguments back then, before the abund- abundance of evidence made it clear that it was, you know, an asteroid or a meteor or something that that came and. Um, cause their extinction. So there were all sorts of theories still kind of in the 80s. I, th- I think it's still something that I read very recently about. There's some kind of lone crusader scientist who's talking about how it wasn't a singular meteoric you know, extinction event that wiped them out, but other reasons. And I remember reading a really interesting article about that. But let's not get sidetracked by yes, the I'm history <laughs> of our planet and how it came to be and the things that happened in it. We'll just talk about our little human experience. <laughs> uh, I want I want to know, uh, like, I find it so cool because when we met in Denver, you told me a little more about the kind of work you did during your MFA and around that time. And I find it so fascinating that you were working on life-size canvases. So these were, what, six feet tall and three or four feet wide? Yeah, uh, about almost, almost life-size, like about three quarters life-size. So they were really big and they're panel uh, so there were wooden panels, so they were heavy too, even heavier than canvas. Yeah. So what's it like to switch from that, that, that kind of size and the kind of ideas with which you frame something in that kind of size, and to switch from that to to a sketchbook? What what is that transition like for you? So, it, if you're not familiar with um, master's programs and graduate programs in studio art, for the most part, it's changing now. But studio art, uh, the master's degree is the terminal degree which means some programs have three-year programs so that they can um, ensure a certain level of academic rigor that that goes into that. Because, you know, where I went to school at Montana State University, there's not a PhD in studio art. So so for two years, you kind of work independently and you build up a body of work. And then your third year is supposed to be your thesis year where you sort of, everything is supposed to uh, coalesce into this one big, um, project or this sort of, you know, um, thematic, I don't know, everything gels. So the semester prior to my senior, my, my third year, um, I wanted to go and study abroad in Italy. Um, the reason being that a, I thought it was going to be really fun and I hadn't really ever done anything like that. I'd only ever been to England when I was about seven years old. So I thought it'd be really cool to go and, and to go where, um, as a painter and as a sort of a semi-traditional, um, you know, portrait and figurative painter, you can't go wrong going to Italy and looking at art there. Um, 
And so I, I spent that semester, it's a, a spring of 2007 um, in Italy. And that studio practice, which is these large paintings on these big, heavy panels, it just doesn't, it's not portable. And, and yes, I could have bought the materials over there, but then getting everything back home just doesn't seem practical either or, you know, remotely affordable. And I was already going deeply. I was taking out a lot of loans just to be in Italy, you know. Um, so um, my um, the, the painting professor I was going, I was accompanying. I was a graduate student and I was going to be teaching some drawing to undergraduate students as in addition to doing my own studies. And then there was a painting professor and an art history professor, full professors that were going. And um, so she was also the head of my committee my graduate committee. And she said, why don't you bring uh, a moleskin and keep a sort of a travel journal or a sketchbook or whatever. And then you can make larger drawings or small paintings that you can roll up and take home, you know, something like that. And so I said, okay, that sounds like a good idea because the first portion of the semester, we're going to spend a lot of time traveling around anyway. We weren't going to be in one place. And, um, and so I, I started, sort of, I thought I would keep a journal in the sense that I would be drawing where I was, but I'd also be writing about my experiences. And I found that really quickly, I mean, I did about four or five pages where there was sort of half writing, half drawing, really quickly, the writing disappeared. And instead, I was interested in just sort of drawing my environment, my surroundings. Um, and at first, it was a more narrative approach. I was really trying to give everybody a sense, you know, if anybody was going to look at this at all, of, you know, this, the story of me going to Italy. But then I realized, I, I was having more fun just sort of picking bits and pieces of things absent of context that were just interesting to me um, to draw. And and at first it was mostly people. It was the students I was with. And then it was small environments like I'm on a bus or I'm on a, a ferry or I'm on a plane. And I'll sketch, sketch the interior of that. And then I was like, well, I mean, one thing that Italy has that Montana didn't really have was architecture. Just amazing architecture. Italy does tend to have a lot of amazing architecture. I mean, yeah, I think you can you could you could make an, a a good case that's a little bit better than Montana. So, I you know, and it I never had much, given it much thought before. I had taken art art history for a, you know a long time, but um, so I could tell you sort of from a you know an academic perspective all sorts of things about architecture, right? But I never really had looked at it in the sense that I hadn't looked at it because I didn't have to draw it, you know? Um, and, and so I was like, well, this is what's what I'm seeing. And this is really interesting and compelling, but I don't know anything about it. I don't know what I'm doing. So in a sort of a naive way, I just started to approach sketching buildings and things like that and landscapes and urban landscapes and, um, and just sort of doing the best I could trying to figure out space. And this is, complex space and I wasn't just interested in like architectural detail and ornament I was trying to figure out everything between me and the building what what's what's all happening in this square what's all happening in this plaza um and I want you know I wanted to um to capture all that in a sketchbook and that problem became sort of an irresistible challenge it was like you know this is this is really exciting this is something I hadn't really thought I would ever be interested in and, um, and now I'm like, okay, so how do I 
figure this out in pen and ink? How do I figure all this space out? Because I had been drawing really shallow and painting really shallow portraits. I mean, not shallow in the sense of superficial, but the the figure in space. It was head on. It was just the, yeah, it was just the figure. There wasn't really an environment. Right. Um, it was this sort of, um, you know, yeah, kind of nebulous space that they inhabited. It was mostly focused on the figure and the, the portrait and nothing else. And so thinking about space was a completely sort of a new challenge. And, uh, and so I filled up my sketchbook right away, my moleskin. It's one of the, the, the medium-sized ones. And then I bought more books over there, and I filled them up and filled them up. and filled, I just kept filling up sketchbooks. I came back to Montana, and while I continued to paint in, in the studio in you know, the pursuit of my, my thesis year, um, I just kept sketching all around Bozeman, Montana, um, you know, my roommate and my apartment. And I would go and sit outside and sketch the trees and I would go out, you know, sketch the, the apartment building from the outside. And then downtown Bozeman, I would sketch the buildings there. And I mean, it was it, it was the thing I was looking the f forward to more than going into the studio and painting and, and, and finishing my thesis, which I did, you know, um, but, and then the other thing that happened was that um, Linda Perman, who is my wife now, but at the time she was my girlfriend and she was still living in New York when I went to um, Italy. Um, she, I sent her some images from the sketchbooks and she said, well, these are really cool. You should put them online. Um, and she had previously told me about Flickr, but it was as a place to put my Italy photos and, you know, like my travel photos. And she said, you should put these on Flickr, too, because they were essentially sight unseen. I was the only person and she, you know, who was seeing these sketchbooks at all. Right. Yeah. This is before Facebook. This is I mean, we weren't really sharing photos as such online. And Flickr was also it had a very professional uh, interface. It was supposed to be for photographers who were right. very serious about their craft, so to say. Yes. And um, and I, I like the interface. It was because. Prior to Flickr, I think there was Photo Bucket and a couple of other um, photo hosting sites uh, that were mainly for if you needed a URL to plug in in a bulletin board or something like that. Like here's a photo of something, and um, you know, or on a message board. And, uh, and Flickr had a cool the the way they organized their communities was really cool because they had groups and they had these sort of like message boards about certain subjects, and you could tag photos so that they would come up in a search about a certain subject. This was before AI had figured out what was in your photo. You had to tag it yourself, right? Um, and uh, so I was putting up these photos, these sketches that I had done around Italy of various, you know, their urban sketches, right? Various places. And Gabi Campanario um, was also on Flickr and had been, I guess he'd, I, I guess he found me through tags or something. Um, and invited me. He had started a little group of people who were doing these sort of urban sketches or travel sketches or, you know, location sketching, right? And he called it sort of an urban sketchers group. And I joined the group and would post in there and see what other people were posting. We would comment, and it was really cool, and it was very international. There was a, people from all over the, the world posting in there, and there was something very, um, I don't know, the community felt really comfortable and um, 
and not everybody was coming from an, you know, an artistic background. Some people were architects. Some people were like Gabby, who was an illustrator for, um, you know, the Seattle times. Um, some people were just complete novices when it came to art, but they were, they were just doing these sketches because that's what they wanted to do. They were just visually documenting their, their surroundings. And there were whole bunches of different approaches. And I like that too. And, um, it didn't feel like other art communities on, you know, the sort of fledgling art communities I'd already seen on the web. Um, and it was really fun. I came back and I continued to do sketching and Gabby decided to start a blog. And at first he didn't invite me to be a correspondent. The first sort of wave of correspondence of 10 or 15 or so correspondents. I wasn't in that group, although I knew about them and I knew them all from the Flickr group. And, but he write, decided to write a feature article about me um, in sort of the first wave of posts um, in the fledgling blog, the beginning of the blog, the urbansketchers.com, later to be urbansketchers.org. Um, and then later, I don't know how it came up, either he asked me or I said, how come, or I would like to be a correspondent if that's okay or something. And he had said, well, I thought you were way too busy, you know, doing doing whatever to be a full correspondent, but sure, that would be great. Um, so I became the, you know, Bozeman, Montana correspondent for the, for the blog. And, you know, not really on my part, but because of Gabby's work, the blog blew up. It became very popular very quickly. And he also found so many people that he wanted to contribute to the blog. He quickly maxed out on the number of contributors that the blogger, allowed which was like a hundred contributors so we had a hundred correspondents from all over the world and it was really amazing and um and then i think if just a, a year or two later he said well we should have a get together like a symposium where we all can come collect in one spot and meet and talk about sketching and talk to each other and show each other what we do and have other people come and visit who aren't maybe correspondents but um, are doing this too and very interested in it and it wasn't huge it was in portland i didn't get to go to that one I had planned on it, but unfortunately, where I was working, uh, I could not get the time off to go. Uh, so I was very disappointed. I was heartbroken, actually. And um, But uh, continued kind of contributing as a blogger, um, you know, correspondent. And then um, the next couple of years, it just the timing wasn't right or I couldn't afford the trip because I wanted to go just to go and take some workshops. Right. I hadn't I hadn't thought about um contributing to the you know the symposium in any way i just wanted to be there and meet all the people and linda linda yet another smart bit of advice she gave me after the flicker thing was well why don't you submit a proposal you're pretty good too <laughs> she said why don't you submit a workshop proposal and then you don't have to worry about the not can't afford it part um and so i did and we ended up going to um brazil to the parachi um, symposium, which I'm not sure which number that was, the fifth symposium uh, or the fourth and um, in 2014. So, um, yeah. And then it's sort of, you know, and it's gone on from there. Uh, that that was that was a very fascinating journey and one part which made me really curious is how when you described going to Italy and of course you and you didn't have any formal understanding of architecture or urban landscapes so to say but you started putting that down now 
there's you know when people think that someone with an MFA is doing urban sketching they assume a lot of advantages you have when it comes to purely drawing because there's a lot of ways in which you understand your tools in a much more in a much more formal and a much more comprehensive way than a lot of self-taught people and ideas like ideas about composition etc but it sounds like the kind of things that you were working on large canvases it didn't directly translate to the things you wanted to make in a sketchbook so i'm curious to know what are the things that like it's obvious to think of the things that that came easily to you when you started working out of a sketchbook but what was the the special challenges that you faced when you first started urban sketching without even knowing the term urban sketching um you know i mean i was sort of doing it without even in a vacuum almost without even being aware of the, the work other people had done i'd seen sort of reportage sketching and travel sketches i think i'd seen sergeant's watercolors which i wouldn't still to this day i wouldn't put myself anywhere near those i can't compare myself to those kinds of pieces but um I, for whatever reason, like, yeah, you're, you're right. And you're in, in the sense that I didn't, you know, there wasn't a direct relationship between my, the MFA work that I was doing. Um, so, and, and urban sketching. So, um, but I did have an advantage. I, you know, I have been doing observational drawing and, you know, in the sense of still lifes, figure drawing and those kinds of things for, you know, however long I've been doing it years and years. Um, so I had, uh, a skill set when it came to that. It wasn't sort of a complete uh, blank slate coming in. Um, and, but I had to, to learn some things about drawing architecture and pen and ink and straight lines and perspective um, that I just had never had a chance to practice, never had an opportunity to really uh, to dive into or a desire to. So let's let's pick one of these. Let's say something like uh, composition and incorporating perspective into composition, because I feel like that's a specific challenge that comes into someone who's doing a lot of portraiture and then is looking at uh, an urban landscape, which has something very close to you. There's a middle foreground, middle ground and a distinct horizon based background. So how did you go about uh, familiarizing, familiarizing yourself with perspective and educating yourself on the subject? Well, I had a little bit of a leg up in the sense that I had, when I went to graduate school, they immediately had me teaching a foundations level drawing class, like a two, two dimensional design class and then drawing. And for both of those, I had to teach perspective, which meant I had to reacquaint myself with those concepts. But I wasn't, I gave it, you know, I was learning it a week ahead of the students, basically. Um, uh, so, and I was 25 and my students were 19. So, I mean, these days I don't feel like they're, I feel like they're the same age as I am, but, you know, so I, I shudder to think of how much trust they placed in my instruction back then, considering how little I really knew, but I guess I had a very confident delivery of those concepts. So I was, um, so I wasn't completely unaware of perspective. I had to learn the, the basics of one, two, and three-point perspective. But we were doing just a limited unit on perspective in those classes because there were so many other things to cover. Um, and when you talk about perspective, the perspective challenges in terms of composition and making something strong compositionally and the perspective work. Composition is still the thing I think I have the most trouble talking about in terms in formal terms because to me, it's still such an intuitive thing. It's taken me 
a long time to figure out how th- to make things work compositionally, but I still have trouble saying why they work compositionally. I'm, I kind of have the knowledge now, but not necessarily the, uh, the technical uh, language to speak about it. Um, I know some of the, the formal rules and concepts, you know, there's, um, you know, all sorts of rules about balance and um, light and dark and things like that, um, that make certain compositional choices work. And I just sort of approach that intuitively, though. I'm not somebody who sets out saying, what is going to make this the most interesting thing? And I feel like I came about it, um, I don't know how to say this, it's sort of a, a lucky thing that I, I, I don't really make choices other than now when I'm, a lot of my drawing is about my entire field of view. I don't make a lot of compositional choices other than what direction to turn my head. Now I do walk, I walk around for a long time and try to figure out where I want to sit to draw, where I, you know, what I want to look at. But then after that, after that, everything pretty much falls into place because I I consider sort of observational drawing at that point, it's an open book test. Everything is in front of you. All the information you need is in front of you. And then you go and you draw it. Now that's a lot easier to say than it is to do. Um, But, um, but the perspective part of it, was I think once I started playing with that, once I started feeling those things out, uh, and when it really happened, was coming back to Bozeman, and I was doing this little, I gave myself a little assignment. I said, I'm going to draw, I had seen Ed Ruscha's book, Every Building on the Sunset Strip, which is an art book he made um, when he was living in, you know, he was living in California, and he took photos of every building on the Sunset Strip in Hollywood uh, from one side of the street. He would just take a photo directly looking directly across the buildings, then move down the street a few, you know, like 20 or 30 feet and take another photo, then take another photo, right? And he collaged them all together. Then he crossed the street and do the other side of the street. So looking at the other direction that he had just been standing on. And he made an accordion style book with those, with those streetscapes printed, you know, on the book. And I'd seen that at the LA County Museum. Um, and I or maybe I was aware of it and hadn't seen it in person yet, but I knew about the project. And then I said, okay, I'll give myself an assignment. I'm going to draw, I'm going to do that, but I'm going to, as a drawing of Bozeman. And I said, cause, cause Bozeman's a small enough town that the downtown is about five blocks on one street. And then there's really nothing else. So I would, I would have a pretty complete um, set of drawings, you know, from just that one slice of main street. Um, and I found a good sort of a panoramic style sketchbook that would work perfectly for that. So I did that, but I was having problems. So the first thing I used to do, I used to draw the buildings um, with the the tops and the bottoms of the buildings horizontal because I knew ge- that geometrically that's what they are, right? Mathematically, they're, they're straight lines, you know? Yeah, so so we're coming to this interesting part that I uh, definitely want you to uh, wanted to probe you about. Also, <laughs> is the warped perspective that you use. Yeah. But before we get into it, I want to ask you to just take. Let's just take one step back because I have uh, just when when you go out to draw. Now I, I'm sure a lot of people have this question about how you do this. So when you go out to draw, can you can, let's let's go over the basic conditions that you kind of fulfill when Paul Heaston is going out to draw, you get in your car, you have a basic set of art supplies that you carry. What's, what's your, what's your primary toolkit? So I have a little sling bag that's kind of, um, smaller than a messenger bag. Um, 
that Linda got me, and I and it's big enough for the eight and a half by five and a half inch standard sort of sketchbooks, um, and not much bigger. Um, and so I'll I'll carry a, a few. I like Stillman and Burns sketchbooks these days. Um, and uh, in the past, it was almost always moleskin, but maybe the last six seven years or so, it's been mostly Stillman and Burn with a couple of Hanamula and. Um, uh, I've just been using some Etcher sketchbooks too, which I, I'm, I'm enjoying. So, um, and then I carry, in the past, it used to be, mol, um, not Molson, it used to be Micron pens, um, mostly Micron or Statler pigment liner pens. And then it took me a while to get into fountain pens. I kept buying them and trying them and not having a good time. Um, and then maybe around 2015, 2016, I started to really, uh, get more comfortable trying them. I had a, a Lamy Safari um, and a you know a Pilot Metropolitan and some other affordable ones, um, and then it really took off when um, Alvin Wong from Urban Sketchers Hong Kong he gave me a Fude Nib pen, and I really fell in love with that. That's just a game changer. Yeah, yeah. I think everybody who tries one agrees. It just it's a, it's a you know it's one of those revelatory moments in the life of an urban sketcher. I, I completely agree. It's really interesting to me how fountain pens are such a integral part of urban sketching. And it's, it's simultaneously it, because urban sketching is almost like, so I think of it like a modern uh, phenomenon, although it's, it's a very, it's a very basic art form that's always been practiced. But I think the way it's popular now is a very modern thing because a lot of people, feel jaded from photographs and overexposure to digital art and very perfect art. So there's this appreciation for something that's very clearly handmade on the spot, on location, and representing the mood and the feelings of that time and place. So there's something very modern about that, the fact that mm -hmm. we like it. But we use this very classical, old-school instrument in which you turn the screw to fill ink into it, and then you go out and you draw with it. And if you run out of ink, there's nothing you can do. Yeah, and you can drip a big blob of ink on your yeah, more than once. And you just gotta say, well, that area is black. <laughs> and <you> just <laughs> yeah. start filling it in. Uh, but yeah, and 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 especially that the the Fude nib fountain pens because they even they don't even give you the kind of precision that like a micron pen or a rollerball or something will do. And so it's not it, very handmade and very. Uh, and same thing with watercolor, which is the most sort of common uh, paint media in urban sketching. It's those sort of uh, things that the media wants to do independently of your own, <laughs> you know, of your own goals that make it so much so interesting, right? And uh, and 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 especially for somebody like me, who's um, I'm kind of you know not kind of, but I'm definitely a, a tighter, uh, more sort of a precise kind of sketcher. Um, I think that wouldn't be you know uh, a surprise to most people. But even with fountain pens, I'm definitely like. Um, you know, I can tone it. I could take it down a notch if I need to. I, I would actually, I would actually say, I find fountain pens easier to be precise with than a micron. Like, I find something about uh, the 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 kind of friction that the fountain pen nib, even the Fude pen nib that it has on the paper, is much is is a much more effective feedback system, like tactile feedback for me than a micron or. You know, a lot of people work with ball pens and I, for the life of me, I, I think I'd be drawing like 
like I was a six year old if I was working with a fountain pen, beca- with a yeah. ball pen, because right. it's I just don't get that feedback from it. Yeah, and that's what I enjoy the most about fountain pens personally. I think yeah, I agree with you that you can do that, and I get very precise lines, especially since I love to turn the nib over too. Um, but I think it may be that for me, it's the most versatile and that it gives me everything from this sort of gestural, um, kind of crazy line, if you want it to, to these sort of precise lines and no other pen gives you all of those sort of options with, you know, and you can really, um, because somebody like Don Lowe can take a Fude nib and make this sort of almost a painting of a sketch. It's a beautiful, it just, um, you know, with these super, super fluid lines and I'm not as fluid, um, but I can, I feel like I can work a little bit quicker, a little more gesturally with a, those food nib pens, um, than a fountain pen or than a micron or a fine liner pen. So you've got, you've got these tools and now you're going out to draw. How, how much time do you typically set yourself for an urban sketch? So if I've got like a little pocket sketchbook, I don't need too much time. You know, half an hour is a good amount of time to anywhere from half an hour to 90 minutes. And that'd be the max amount of time I'd spend on a pocket sketchbook. And then the larger, you know, standard size or larger, like these etcher books I've been working in lately, um, two or three hours. Um, Now that's if I've set aside like a half day or a day to go out and sketch and I've got a goal and I've even got like an idea where I want to be. Um, so they're not as much tools for spontaneous sketching, like, you know, wherever I am located kind of sketching. Um, so I, I find myself sometimes, especially before the pandemic set in and I was, I would drop my wife off at work and I was also dropping my, my older daughter off at school. Um, and my youngest daughter who was only one when the pandemic started would fall asleep in the car after all these drop-offs at her, her morning nap. So by about nine, nine thirty. She was falling asleep in the car and I didn't want to take her home, disturb her and risk her not getting her nap by taking her out of the car and putting her up in her crib. So I would pull over somewhere um, and look for something interesting on the street to draw. And I was, I always had my pocket sketchbook in my back pocket, you know, and then I only needed a half an hour to an hour. Um, and then, you know, she'd start to stir and I would sit and I would move on. And so I've done a lot of my like little street, my parked car sketches from that. Yeah, yeah. Your parked your parked car sketches are almost like something unique that you do. Like I I identify a lot of your work as this is something he drew out of a car for sure. Yeah, yeah. And it's it's very it's very funny to know how naturally it came about because of circumstances and it wasn't even a particularly planned activity. It started actually with my first daughter with Juniper when she was that age too because I was dropping my wife off at work five years ago and. Um, and so, um, but then it, you know, in between when she was too old to be taking naps, you know, in her car seat, um, I stopped doing it for a little while. Um, but then the other thing I do is I'll go out on a Saturday or a Sunday, you know, and uh, sort of my day off and my uh, chance to go out and do one sketch. Um, and I'll go out and walk around, look for a place to sketch lately. Um, if you follow me on social media, you know, I've been going to junkyards a lot. Um, and that's one thing I really enjoy is, uh, going and, um, wandering around looking for some kind of rusted hunk of <laughs> metal. Um, I do like drawing cars and, and I used to draw, I used to go to transportation museums and things around town and, or just parked cars that are running and clean and normal looking. Um, but a few years ago, I have a friend who, um, 
who wrote for Auto Weekly, um, and he lives here in Denver. And he took me. He's a, he takes photographs around um, junkyards, and he decided he would take me and say, "Why don't you do a sketch, and then I'll take pictures of you sketching." And um, I first time I'd ever been to one of those places. I think I'd always because I'm not a car person. I had always probably been too intimidated to ever want to check one of those one of those places out, and also I've never never done any work on a car, so I'd never had an excuse. Um, and uh, so I went, and I really enjoyed it, uh, walking around looking at these sort of dilapidated, kind of half deconstructed things, sort of rusting in these piles. And uh, and you know you don't have to be, I think especially if you're somebody who's intimidated by drawing cars in the first place, these things are all bent and rusted and dented and the wheels are gone or they're half deflated or they're at odd angles. So if you're worried about getting all the lines right and the curves right and the perspective right, you have much less to worry about in a junkyard. Because <laughs> the junkyard takes care of a lot of what would be called your mistakes. Exactly. So nobody's going to be able to say, hey, wait a minute, that's a little off. You're like, oh. It must have got. It must have been in a horrible wreck. You know that is a nice trick for people to know in case you want to draw cars and you're not confident. Draw beat up cars. That's right. But I also love just the environment. It's quiet. You're outdoors, and it's very. I don't know. It's meditative for me in a a way that maybe sketching out on the street isn't. Um, So it's an interesting environment to sketch. I, I recommend it if you can find a place that's amenable. I've always asked permission. Um, it's not something because they could, some of the people who run those places can be a little rough around the edges. Um, so it's not something you want to, uh, ask forgiveness for. Cause if, you know, they want to make money, they want you to, you know, to go out and, and find a car part and pay for it. That's what they're interested in. So, uh, if you say, no, I just want to sketch your junk. Some of them will give you a strange look, but uh, if you show them your sketchbook, um, and you're friendly upfront and, you know, honest about your intentions. I've found that everybody has been pretty friendly. So, so, uh, let's come to the really cool novel part of, about your work, finally to the warped perspective. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so you, you were, you began describing it. And from what I gathered, it was about how you didn't want to draw like an infinitely long, horizon completely flat so maybe you could explain that further sure without going into crazy detail about this this drawing in Bozeman I was doing but basically I it wasn't working for me to keep these street walls this this wall of buildings um completely horizontal you know where it met the ground and then the roof lines because I would be looking down the street to my right and left and I was saying well like they're tapering they're going off they're receding toward a vanishing point. I knew enough about perspective to understand that, you know, and, and, uh, and they start, you know, that, that receding well before the, they're cut off by the side of the page. So am I being honest about what I'm seeing if I don't draw that? And how do I draw that? And I remember thinking about, well, I've seen panoramic photos and, you know, at this point, I think Google street view was already around too. And, uh, so it's not such a, you know, um, uh, an alien idea that you could curve the drawing, you curve the space in the drawing, but I hadn't really given it much thought because I think when I'd seen stuff, stuff like fisheye photos in the past, 
I'd always heard that is attributed to distortion of a lens. Like when you make a lens a certain way, it distorts space. Well, what's not? That's not that's not a a very precise way of discussing what's happening with the lens. What's really happening is it's showing more space. And when you show all that space, um, it has to curve because to to include all of this space, this sort of global or fisheye perspective, um, you're everything's going to start to curve as it gets further and further from the center of your field of vision, the center of your line of line of sight. And I mean, this is stuff I sort of found out later as I studied after the fact, after I was sort of drawing visual conclusions about space. Um, So I was like, let me try this. And I, so I started drawing these sort of this arc shape on my buildings, um, this sort of curved roof line and then curved line where the buildings meet the curb, you know, where they meet the, the sidewalk. And I was like, this makes more sense to me. It feels better in terms of describing this space because I have this long panoramic sketchbook and, you know, it just made more sense. And I kept going and I kept going and I would get, got more and more comfortable with that. And then I started, I was like, well, let me apply this to an interior space. I'll go and draw in a, in a coffee shop and see what I can do with this idea of curving the space. And then I was like, well, there's all these verticals too, these strong verticals. And if you think about it, they they converge up at the top of my field of view and down at the bottom of my field of view. And so now I have to curve my vertical lines too. And I was, they were starting to become these sort of fisheye drawings. And then, and then the natural part of that was that, well, if I'm including everything I can see in my field of view, that includes my hands and my sketchbook. And maybe even my 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 feet, if I have my legs crossed, or my chair, or my you know the table I'm sitting at. So I was like, I mean, I'm looking at my sketchbook when I'm drawing, so it must be in the drawing. It has to be there because uh, I know I can see it because I'm looking at it. Uh, so that's how that came to be as part of my the sort of a signature thing that I do is including my hands and sketchbook in the drawing. But I, it wasn't so much like I needed to establish a gimmick. That wasn't me thinking oh, this would be a great way to brand myself. So so much as it was sort of the logical extension of what I was thinking thinking about in terms of perspective. And I was like, well, I've got to put that in there. It just makes sense. Um, and so, but it did become this sort of a, a, um, an identifying characteristic of my sketches over the years. I would have to say it's like your signature, signature look. How, how do you feel about that fact? Do you think it's your signature look? You know, I mean, I've counted up I know how many sketches I've done in the past, oh, um, 13 years now. And it's about like five or 6,000. Um, but I, I've counted how many of them are that kind of sketch. And that's only a couple of hundred. So while everybody associates that with me, it's by by far not the majority of the sketching I've done. But it is so distinctive that I think it's the most sort of memorable thing people, when they encounter it, they're like, oh, I remember he does the crazy drawings with the you're in you're in very good company because this conversation we're having it it keeps uh, reminding me of some recent studying i've been doing so i've been reading this book about mc escher the really famous dutch graphic artist Mm -hmm. and so he got sort of embroiled so to say in mathematics uh, without intending to because of very similar things like he wanted to show everything but he wanted to show it in a finite amount of space because he was making prints he was a printmaker. And so he also started to curve reality in order to be able to show it and to then still mathematically, according to the way perspective would work, to show it uh, tapering away to various horizons. 
and i think this is not even the work he beca- he's most famous for so the work that he is uh, popular throughout the world for is this optical illusion work which is a very small part of his mm-hmm. otherwise large incredibly big repertoire but he's become super famous for this this little thing which again which he was doing just because it was the logical extension of his ideas taking it to fruition well and i think that is a sort of microcosmically a good descriptor of the way artists develop um i think if you're if you have a too much of a too strong a degree of intentionality about your career trajectory or the things you want to do uh i think it'll all blow up um you know or it, it you can be you could you could wind up disappointed but if you just sort of follow uh these sort of natural um things these natural things that you start to get curious about when you when you solve one problem another problem pops up and you become curious about that and you just sort of organically find your way through these you know these things that you're interested in um i think that's you know pretty typical of you know artistic development or at least um one that isn't you're not trying to shape too intentionally um and uh, you know and and i and i'm somebody who will simply i'll just pursue a tangent um until i've kind of wrapped my mind around this you know to my, you know and I, I maybe haven't satisfactorily found you know the end of this particular line of of uh, you know inquiry to to put a highfalutin term in there but i mean like uh i it's just something that I naturally was interested in like you know like mc escher and it's when you say escher too because I had been a big fan of Escher as a kid, always. Um, you know, I think my grandpa had an Escher book, and I, I had an Escher T-shirt. I had the Tessellations, where the birds become the fish, and uh, and I, and then I had my own books. You know, later on, and I loved Escher, and I sort of I must have absorbed subconsciously some of the perspective uh, play that he was engaged in, even if I hadn't really had a handle on what he was doing then. Um, and then it's, it's funny as I, you know, was on social media more and more and seeing other people doing these things, I'd also realized, well, this is nothing that nobody that other people haven't already explored, not just Escher, but I, I was discovering all sorts of artists who were doing these amazing perspective, um, play, you know, experiments with drawing and things like that. Gerard Michel, uh, is a Belgian urban sketcher had been doing it in the seventies, you know? Uh, Rackstraw Downs, a painter. Um, and then when I got an Instagram, it's funny, I hadn't even heard um, of, of this artist until in- Instagram, but um, uh, Kim Jong-gi is a Korean Kim, artist. Yeah, he's 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 one of my, my heroes. <laughs> he's the reason why I decided I was going to draw with a pen and without an eraser, just just make it happen like him. I didn't know a thing about him. And then I got an um, Instagram and people were like, oh, you're copying <laughs> Kim Jong-gi's <laughs> work. And I was like, who? <laughs> and we had been doing those similar, those um, point of view drawings, yeah, you know, yeah. um, unaware of the, the other's work. Uh, I I'm still doubt that he's aware of my work, but, you know. So, and it was a little bit of a, like, I was taken aback, like, well, no, I would never, you know, I wasn't. But then I was like, well, he's really good. But then other people were like, um, recognized that I'd been doing it, you know, since 2007. And 
also that you know our styles aren't particularly similar superficially yeah i think but he does this beautiful brush pen work and real stark and contrasty and coming from a comic book background um just amazing stuff amazing and his understanding perspective i mean isn't even maybe the strongest thing about him he he also his like his ability to recall um detail very specific stuff like he could draw an army vehicle from memory or he can draw, exactly right uh, yeah. just unbelievable or or these kind of nano like these kind of uh, human robotic suits and exoskeletons and i think just the way he can he can compose a page which seems like chaotic but all the parts just even if you just glance at it it makes sense to you yeah unbelievable stuff i i, I could watch the videos all day of when he, of him working um i highly recommend doing that to people <laughs> who don't know his work because i've learned a lot from just jealously watching kim <laughs> jong ji's videos and hoping one day i'm going to draw like that and if yeah yeah there are people who inspire you to pick up a pen and then there are people who inspire you to put it down i think he's in the latter the latter category he's like oh i think I, I don't think i need to do a drawing today what's the point yeah what's the point <laughs> So uh, I, I th- there are a lot of people who might think that way when they look at your own work. So I want to ask you, uh, like, you you must get a lot of questions from people all the time on Instagram and on Facebook. Even in workshops that you do in person, you probably get a lot of get a lot of interesting and sometimes a lot of very typical questions. So what's like a popular question that you feel like maybe you don't always get uh, the best? opportunity to answer maybe you don't get to take your time to answer that you would like to speak about now well i mean i can i can say i know the ones i get most commonly are what are the materials i use which we've covered and how how long did this take which we've also sort of covered um and three hours is pretty much my limit before you know my extremities go numb um i mean and then i get a lot of questions that do require some sort of in-depth um you know they're not it's sort of easily answered in a, in a little tiny blurb. Um, and some of those are, you know, like, how do you do this when it comes to this sort of um, this perspective drawing that I do, um, which is not something I can, I've ever, I mean, I'm not even, I'm not even tempted to try and answer those questions anymore. <laughs> There's no way. I mean, I, I, I'll point them to my classes or something. Um but um, so that's a good question. I'm trying to think. What's a question that I wish I could uh, I could answer with if given more time? Let, let me try to break down this perspective uh, drawing challenge, and maybe you can tell me that and like uh, through these shorter questions that I'll try to formulate. So let's say you you're drawing without any kind of pencil work, right? You're drawing straight with ink on paper for the most part. It's about fifty fifty. Um, I for smaller sketches or quicker sketches. I don't, I don't bother with pencil and for the larger sketches that I know I'm going to be there for a, a few hours and I, and the perspective is a little more complicated or elaborate. I will do a brief and I'm, I mean brief, never more than maybe 10 minutes of just a sort of skeletal pencil work, no detail, just trying to lay out the basic proportions, the basic blocks of shape um, in the sketch. And then I, I go on almost always. I end up changing the the location of everything by the time I get to the pen, but um, it's still a little bit of a safety net on those bigger drawings. I find that sometimes when I do the bigger drawings without the pencil, it doesn't matter 
Um, I couldn't, I, I wouldn't be able to tell you the difference after the fact. So it's, it's a little bit like Dumbo and the magic feather. I don't really need it, the pencil, but it, it some, sometimes it's still a security blanket for me, if that makes any sense. Yeah. I feel like sometimes the, the beauty comes out, like, even if it's an especially challenging perspective scene, even kind of getting it wrong can, you know, like there's this thing I was thinking about. It's like the difference between accuracy and precision. Mm-hmm. So accuracy, precision is how exactly correct. Uh, accuracy is how exactly correct you are. So if you're drawing a perspective, how how close to reality is it? But precision is how consistent you are. So can you reproduce that same result again and again? Or even you could have low accuracy, so you're not exactly correct, but you make the same kind of mistake again and again, which is, I think, what... So high precision and low accuracy, I think, is the formula for developing a style. Mm -hmm. Like if you make those same kind of exaggerations or those same kind of mistakes. And I feel like in some sketches, the accuracy of your perspective is less important. Or even though that perspective might exist, but the style of that sketch is the real uh, the real appeal, and even a bit of chaos in the perspective accuracy is irrelevant. Yeah, absolutely, and I agree with you that style is sort of those consistent idiosyncrasies that crop up in the work. Um, you know, no matter how hard you try to eliminate them. Yeah, and I like how when you were explaining, you know, the the way we move forward, the way like you've been you've been doing urban sketching for. 12, 13 years now. So the thing that keeps it exciting is to have those, not not have a predetermined goal of how you want to draw. Mm-hmm. Now, a lot of people, when I speak to people who want to learn how to draw better, you get a lot of what I think are disappointing questions because people ask you how to draw like them. Mm-hmm. And I want to shake them and I want to say that there's no point trying to draw like me. You should be trying to draw like you. And... It's because there's this idea that the way to get better is this objective path that you're supposed to follow and this is how well you do in certain things and these are the points you get for it and then you become a good artist. And I find it's really important to teach people to kind of accept their mistakes and to almost be brash about the mistakes they make and to make that into art because really that's that's what it is right especially in urban sketching so much of it is just what comes out of you right no absolutely it's um it is it's a it's a fine line between being so discouraged that you you know you cease um being interested in the problem right or the challenge of you know sketching and overcoming problems to the point where the work becomes sort of antiseptic and rote and not um, visually compelling, right? So so you have to almost be not aware of that. You have to have a little bit of a blind spot and a little bit of a, uh, a confidence, uh, enough confidence that you're, um, you're not discouraged by those idiosyncrasies and maybe you're not even aware of them. You don't see them. Um, and that allows you to continue to make the, the work while, while not eliminating the thing that makes the work so interesting. Right. Um, and almost and, helps to not be too knowledgeable about what you're doing. Right. Like there's a reason like the Beatles, I think, you know, I hate to always use the Beatles cause I it's, but it's, it is one of those cases where like, 
They were wildly successful. They made some really interesting music. And they were, in a sense, sort of naive artists. They don't have any musical training or academic background. Not saying that if you do have those things, you couldn't make interesting music. Like Queen, they went to music school and they really made great stuff too with that knowledge. Um, so, but it, it's there, it can be a useful thing. Uh, I mean, you know, they say a little bit of knowledge can be a dangerous thing, right? And, and, and in the sense that it can stifle, uh, some of the, um, the willingness to let those sort of happy accidents happen. And, um, and I, for that reason, I was always reluctant to really dive into perspective from um, a mathematical um, you know point of view I was I was wor- worried that having a little bit too much knowledge would change the way I approached seeing things and I liked my sort of intuitive coming from the outside kind of approach um, and I didn't want to I mean and maybe it's a, a silly thing to be to be worried about but um, I didn't want to be too informed by this sort of mathematical understanding of it. I know a lot about it, though, probably more than the layperson in terms of, you know, even the mathematical underpinnings of perspective. Just over the years, I've absorbed so much and I've had to teach it. And and in teaching it, I've had to teach, well, here's how people uh, think it works and here's how I think it works. You know, in order to be able to teach the way I do it, I had to learn how other people think about it. Um, so... But on the other hand, it's sort of, um, uh, I, I still don't, I don't bring a protractor or a ruler with me and, and I don't, you know, and I, I still do things that, um, subvert expectations, um, you know, in terms of my drawing and, um, and hopefully if I can continue to do that and I don't get too complacent, then I'll still find interesting things to, you know, to explore in, in, in sketching. Yeah, it's this uh, balance between, like, you want to you want to enjoy what you're doing, and but you're all you also want to be on the edge because the curiosity to try something new, it's it's this like uh, recently I read about the passing of this very famous speaker called uh, Sir Ken Robinson. I think that was his mm-hmm. name. Yeah, but he did a TED talk that was really influential, and it's I think it's so it's the most watched TED talk in history and he talks about creativity and how we kill it as we grow older and coming back to how we started this uh, with our uh, with your inspirations from childhood it's he says that creativity is something that everybody is born with but over time we learn to ignore it and we give it less and less credit and we become almost afraid of it so it we leave it we lessen our creativity over time and so it's very important for us to it's something that's very important for us to not lose. And I guess when you're when you're so many years into what you're doing, it's very interesting how you keep yourself motivated and how you find the uh, the the interesting challenge that keeps you drawing nearly every day. It's yeah, and I, I'll tell you when I talk about intentionality, I think that's part of it. It's, it sort of seems counterintuitive, but in order to remain creative, for me, treating it like work rather than like creative time seems to be the best way to do it because making equals making those discoveries, those creative leaps and finding those creative avenues to explore. But by not making, 
but by thinking about what's the best thing to do, what's the most creative thing I can do, you're sort of already you've you've lost the race before it's even started. You you know you're out of, out of the gate. You're sort of handicapped in a sense um, because being too deliberate is maybe sort of the death knell of that creative impulse. And you can't sit and think and think and think and think and make an interesting drawing. Um, in my experience, you know, it, you've just got to make drawings and you might make a bunch of bad ones before you get to the good one, but it'll come if you keep making. You can't make a good one if you don't make any drawings. It's just not possible. And there's, you know, there has to be a point at which you understand that like the work, which seems like the sort of driest, most, um, you know, depressing part of making art is like, you know, just treating it like it's a job. Um, you realize, no, that's where it is. It's like the um, the, the Chuck Close quote. I, I, you, you and I may have talked about this before, but inspiration is for amateurs. The rest of us just get up and get go to work. And I think it had been, I think I heard it third hand when I first heard it, but it was like everybody has a thousand shitty paintings in them. The quicker you get rid of the thousand, the quicker you can get to the good ones. And then I always have the addendum that I've sort of noticed is like, well, they're not in a row. That's the good news. You don't have to make a thousand bad ones before the good one, the first good one. And what it, it's just that the ratio of bad to good is heavily favors the bad at first. And then, and then towards the end of your life, if you're lucky and you worked hard, the ratio of bad to good heavily favors the good, but they're still bad. Like you can't get rid of those either. Um, but you, you have to, you can basically shift that, you know, that ratio over to more good than bad, more successful than unsuccessful is maybe a better way to put it um, over time. And that, but the only way to do it is to make enough that you, <laughs> that you shift the ratio, you know, cause you're starting out. Yeah. Your, your record is something like 50 and three, you know, your record is terrible. So the 50 are always going to be there on your, you know, in your record weighing you down right mentally as well but but if you make 75 more and then it's 50 50 all of a sudden it's starting to even out and then you know you make 150 more and three quarters of those are successful you know so it's um but you got to make 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 it's um there's no other way around it um and uh it sounds such like such boring advice that i, I sometimes hesitate to give it because the shortcut is the long way you know, that's another kind of cliche. And it, does, it always sounds like a cliche. And that's and so people tend to ignore cliches. It's just boring advice, but also very, very effective. It's it's the easiest way to definitely get it done. But, you know, you learn as much when you're not in the mood or you're making a terrible painting as you do when you are in the mood and you're making something worthwhile. And sometimes you find yourself really high on a particular sketch in the moment. And then you go back and look at it later and you're like, what was I so excited about? I don't know. It wasn't, this wasn't working the way I thought it was, you know. Do you have a lot of people who, like, do you also post the sketches that you're personally not as happy with? Or do you only post the ones that you really, really love? Every now and then. But I find, I mean, it's time consuming to even post the sketches I like. Um, and so I, I have a, a long record of sketches on the web. So I figure people can just go back if they really want to dig and find my old work. And, and I, I sometimes post my old work. Um, I posted some 12 year old drawings today on Instagram and, um, and people are interested in those and people like to see that development. They like to see uh, how approaches change. And I, I'll be, I'll be the first to say that 
I didn't know as much about urban sketching then, but I did know a lot about drawing and things like that 10, 15 years ago. So I wasn't entirely uh, a novice at that point, you know, but I can go back and show my, you know, really young work and every now and then, and you can see that development. Um, but even in the past four or five years, I mean, the things that I start to, you know, I'm interested in, in terms of pen work and, uh, now I use ink wash more than I do cross hatching or, or this and that. Um, you know, I mean, there's, there's all sorts of little markers I can look at, um, even in recent work and say, okay, well, I do this differently now. Um, and, uh, you know, and sometimes I look at an old piece and go, wow, I, I don't feel like I could do that anymore. That's actually pretty good. And I don't see that way anymore. I wonder where I was and what I was thinking. How, how do I get back to that frame of mind? Do you have these sketches sometimes where you feel like as if they're not going well and they're not going well and just you find that you rescue them towards the last one third of the drawing time you have? Maybe all, almost all of them. I mean, there's like a, you know, they're marathons for me. There's three hours full of, you know, hand wringing and sweating and, you know, anxiety because there's nothing no worse feeling for me than three hours that I felt I wasted. And, um, I don't, you know, I mean, philosophically I can say, okay, I didn't really waste that time. It's all useful time. Um, but you know, you don't get your little social media cookie sometimes. And that's, you know, you know, it, I, I can't deny that the social media response of the reinforcement, the positive, you know, reinforcement of social media plays a role and how I feel about my work, you know, because it's always cur you're always curious, like, this is when I thought was really working great, and people don't seem that interested. And this one, I was like a little throwaway thing that I did, and people are wild about it. And I always want to know about that. But I, you know, but I'm also, I love it when I love something, and then everybody else seems to love it too. And I feel like there was this, I'm connecting with those people who are, you know, fans. And, um, and that's always fun. And I can't say that's not a part of it. But I can at least, I know I would still be doing this without the social media because I started it without the social media and it was just as compelling for me then. I don't know, maybe, maybe after 13 years, maybe it wouldn't have been. I don't know. So you've got a lot of work that you put on. Firstly, you put a lot of work on Instagram. So the, a lot of your viewers and fans are looking at your work as it comes out. But over the last year, you've also put together, is it, is it one or is it two books now? It's two books, right? Yes. Uh, well, actually, three. It's th um, so three, two with blurb. One is sort of a collection of odds and ends and sketches the last three or four years. That was the first book that came that I put out with blurb in the fall of 2019, um, and that's called Sketches Volume One. So when you're putting this work together and you you put them together as books, and now people are buying them as books and they're consuming your work in you know multiple pages in their hands. Mm -hmm. Do you get any other interesting feedback from them? Are there other, are there some new insights that people are sharing with you about what they like? It's been mostly positive and I haven't gotten a, not a lot of specific feedback other than maybe technical things um, in terms of how they're printed or the binding, etc. Um, but some people have said, um, you know, it's interesting to see it, I think, at the scale that I was doing it because, um, especially in the, that first book and in the, the last one. Um, well, the first one is most of the sketches are one-to-one. -one, so they're the scale that I drew them at. And um, 
and it, and it's the same as when you come and you meet a sketcher for the first time, you look at their sketchbook in your hands. It's a really cool thing because now you have a much more, uh, a much greater appreciation of what it is they're doing when they're sitting down to sketch. You can see, you know, you can feel that there's that tactile uh, thing happening. And like people, when I first was, I used to do everything in my pocket moleskin and almost never worked in the midsize ones. And so I went to um, Brazil for the, the first Urban Sketcher Symposium that I went to and people saw my sketchbook. They're like, I had no idea these were so tiny. And that was also where I got the, uh, I, I understood that it's better to take, I used to scan everything and post it, you know, and I eliminated everything but the artwork because that's all I cared about was the artwork. I don't care about the board, the borders, the edges of the book or the environment or whatever. And then I learned, I learned, well, what people want to see is that book in, in situation, you know, in the, in the context of the environment you made it. And so then I started taking pictures of me holding up the sketchbook in front of the object and people, people responded in a different way. And, and it made sense too, too. I, I, to me, I was, it clicked. I was like, okay, you know, now people have a better relationship or better understanding of what I was doing when I sketched. And the same is, hap is true of when they buy the sketchbook. That's a reproduction of the, you know, the sketches is they can feel, you know, like it's, it feels like having my book in their hand and they're, oh, okay, this is how big, this is how long of a mark that is. Right. You know, because everything is this little on a little tiny screen or on a big laptop screen or something like that. And then you can zoom in, you can pinch and pull and whatever, but you have no idea the physical reality of that sketch. It's, you know, it's sort of divorced from that. And so the book kind of brings it back to that. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree with you. I think that's that's like the most because there's so many sketches you follow only on only on Instagram now. Mm -hmm. And of course, because of the size of your phone, that's what you see. And no matter what you zoom into, like just have, not being able to zoom into it, seeing it as it is almost. Mm -hmm. And especially if you also draw. So for me, looking at your books and I would just imagine that this is the size that you also probably drew them in. And I can go over it with a pen in my mentally or actually with a pen and try to see how these lines would come about. And so things that that come to mind, therefore, are like when you're drawing at a small scale and you're drawing something that's much bigger. And of course, you've done so much work with canvases that that are actually much bigger. There's so much uh, judgment and creative decisions that an artist takes about what to focus on and what gets reduced to insignificance. And when we're working in limited time, as urban sketchers are, we're always making these creative decisions about where to cut corners, where we want to spend time. Is that uh, so? Is that something that you feel like you mentally decide before you start a sketch when you're sitting down somewhere and you've got your scene in front of you that you're sure about? Do you kind of uh, take stock of how much time or how much focus you're going to give to different parts of what you see? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I... It, 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 and it's another thing that maybe is a little bit more true now for me. Um, but I I don't like being rushed, even if I it's going to be a fast sketch. Um, that and that having that feeling in the corner of your mind that you need to you know you need to be gone soon or whatever always takes away um, some of the I don't know something from the sketch. So I do think about those things, but I like. I prefer to be in an open situation, ended situation. Um, and, um, you know, it's, 
sometimes I think about where, um, where I need to be at a certain point, like, okay, by this point I should have all the pencil drawing done, or I should have the, uh, the ink work done so I can work on ink wash or something like that. Like, and I'll look at the clock and like, okay, so I, I want to leave here at two and it's, and now I have an hour left. So now it's time to move on. Um, and, but other times I kind of find myself running out the clock before I've even noticed. Um, it's one of those things where it's, it's enough escapist kind of a feeling and a, and a, and a meditative feeling that I lose track of time. But I feel like even if you do that enough times, you sort of intuitively end up structuring your page so that, you know, like, so I do a lot of drawings in the exactly opposite circumstance that you're describing. Mm -hmm. I do a lot of drawings of people in public spaces and public transport. So I never know when my subject is going to be gone. So I'm always thinking about how little time I might have. And that's constantly running in, in the back of my head. So as a result, I feel like I take a lot of creative decisions which have to do with that fact. And even when you are taking creative decisions, similarly, you're, you're working over two hours or three hours, you kind of naturally come to a point where you know that if you might, if you've done it a few times that you've left, had to leave quickly at, after a certain amount of time, you get used to, like you have a list of things that you know you must have done by now. Mm -hmm. So that even an incomplete sketch, quote unquote, incomplete sketch is not quite, you know, it, it still has a sense of completion. Yes. And I think when, and I feel, it feels so remote to me now, but when I did coffee, coffee shop sketching and things like that, where I could do an interior space and take time, but the interior was changing because people are coming and going and, or I might be looking a little bit out the window and parked cars will move and another car will replace them, et cetera. Um, yeah, I mean, it's some, I've always had a pretty uh, carefree approach to things like moving on because one thing I've done a, since early on is that I create these hybrids of people <laughs> because I know if somebody moves, they're likely to be replaced by another person. So, like, that's one thing I do. And then I just take my time because I go, okay, if they're going to leave and somebody will probably come along or if not, I'll take the person next to them and kind of you know smash them together same thing with cars way back when i was doing the bozeman sketches in montana you know there would be an suv across the street and it would leave and be replaced by another suv and so you'll see the beginning. as it would tend to happen if you live in montana yes or vir virtually anywhere now but um but you know so like the the front is a jeep grand cherokee and the back is like a you know um uh, Toyota Highlander or something. Um, and, uh, you know, and I, I kind of enjoyed those chimeras uh, that I was making. Um, so I didn't ever, I never got too been out of shape about people moving on. Sometimes you, you, you put a lot of energy into something and then it leaves before you can really round it into something presentable. And that is, that is a really, you know, that's obnoxious. So when I'm worried that that there's the potential for that happening. I definitely do plan that out. I go, okay, I'm tackling you first because I have no idea how long this is going to be here. This is going to be like this. Same thing with shadows. If there's a shadow I particularly love, I'm like, I'm getting this out of the way. And then I might do the other shadows in the sketch like an hour or two later, and they don't even make sense with that shadow, but it doesn't matter. Um, but, you know, so I'll do that. I go, okay, this is important. This person, 
has the potential to leave immediately. And I want to get all of them because they're interesting. Um, you know, and then other times I start drawing a person and they leave and they're never replaced or the place empties out. Sometimes I'm alone in a coffee shop and then I just draw over where they were with the details of the empty space. And that's happened, you know, a couple of times too. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Uh, let's, let's do some closing statements now. I'm, I'm not sure how I want to do this for all the guests I have here, but I, I want to have some kind of a question. I ask them all. So I'm going, this is the first time I'm asking somebody and hopefully this becomes the start of a glorious tradition. Okay. <laughs> the question I have is, uh, to people who don't, uh, who aren't artists and who don't do any form of urban sketching, what is one good reason you could give them to do so? It's, hmm, that's a good question. It's really, I mean, I have to put myself in the mind of a person who's not an artist, which is the challenge, I think, of answering this question. Because what the things I love about it, I don't know how well that translates, but um, it's meditative. But I suppose if it's not something you enjoy, then it would be hard to find that level in it. Um, and you know, and it, it's easy to become impatient with something when you're not, you don't have that skill set yet. Um, but it is something about communicating your, letting your eye communicate sort of directly with your hand, um, which isn't a skill unique to drawing. It's a skill that, you know, I think we all have a relationship with, um, and letting the brain sort of out of the picture for a little while. Um, and just focusing on that relationship, that dynamic between your eye and your hand, um, is a really interesting exercise for everybody, whether it becomes a frustrating or challenging thing for you or not. Um, not, it's about that process. You know, if you're not an artist, not about the result and that process, I think reaps, I mean, there's, there's rewards whether or not you're interested in making something that you want to show people later. Um, because I th there's something about that that is sort of primal to the idea of making in general. Um, and it's very much at sort of the core of our uh, abstract thought about language and, and, um, and learning um, and, and, and having seen, you know, been raising a five-year-old and a two-year-old, um, watching them start that way from the, the first, the moment my, my first, my youngest daughter, she reached out and she batted at the, um, the little mobile that was above her little rocker seat. When she figured out, when she figured out she had the power to change what she was looking at with her hand, she went and did something, right? And that was, it's this extraordinary kind of a moving thing to think about. Um, and, and, you know, it's like that 2001 scene with the, the apes realizing they can use the, you know, the stick to beat up other apes or whatever it is, or to break the bone, that manipulation, that feeling of manipulation, um, with your eye and your hand communicate like that, whether it's, I mean, we do that all the time, even if it's sort of like satisfactorily typed something or, you know, you, uh, or you caught something that fell off the counter. Um, you know, like there's something very satisfying and, um, uh, 
universally, you know, appreciate appreciable. Is that the word about that for everybody? I think we can all kind of feel that and, and drawing, I think is a very pure expression of that feeling. Um, if you're thinking of just in terms of process. So if you're not an artist and you're not really worried, and that's the very hard thing to do is to let go of result being results oriented with making art, but enjoying that process. Um, I think that, that, that is a good reason to pick up a pencil or pen and, and try it. That sounds like a good reason to me. It's, uh, I feel like even if you are an artist, so many people don't put in enough time to practicing because they don't, they're still results oriented. So the process of becoming good, which involves making those 50 or 100 bad drawings, Mm -hmm. even if they're not bad per se, they're still not up to your standard. So to you, they're bad and they're all failures in various ways. And we, we don't, we don't extract the joy from the process of having made them. And that makes it difficult to keep on going through this process, which, you know, eventually you're going to start uh, finding the diamonds in the, among the coal, mm-hmm. but you have to go keep enjoying this process of day by day. And that's what I love about watching my kids draw is that my two girls, my, my oldest is now to the point where she can draw recognizable things and whatever. So she is becoming more and more results oriented, which is a little, you know, there, there's a lot more happening with her and her skill development there. Um, and she gets more frustrated, but my youngest, she's two and it's just mark making. And it's just this joy of using the mark and make, seeing the color, the marker or the crayon or whatever. Um, and there is no goal other than that physical experience, you know, and, um, it's a really cool thing to, to relate to, um, and to go back and say, well, I was this for, you know, a healthy portion of my development as a child. Um, and then you become so results oriented that you'd rather see no result than a poor one. And then we, and that goes back to everybody no longer being creative. It's like, because the idea of being a failure is so much more horrifying than doing something at all uh, that you don't, you don't even do it, you know? I, I completely agree that that this was a very insightful conversation, Paul, as always with all <laughs> our conversations, I feel like I have learned many things. Oh, uh, no, <laughs> I don't know about that. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I look forward to hearing from a bunch of different artists. And of course, I love your thoughts and the way um, you um, you interpret <laughs> like you 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 helped me kind of encapsulate some of my ideas and that's never a bad thing was a fun recap for old listeners and a great new story for new listeners to listen to. We will begin the second conversation with Paul in just a minute. Before we do, I'd like to tell you about my sponsors. The Sneaky Art Podcast is 100% listener supported. This means my sponsors are people just like you. People who enjoy listening to these conversations and who appreciate the work that goes into putting it all together. If you like my work, there are two easy ways for you to support it and to keep it going. So, if you like this episode, buy me a coffee. That's it. 
Follow the link in the show notes to buy me a cup of coffee or two cups or three or four, whatever you're comfortable with, whatever suitably expresses your appreciation for this work. Buying me a coffee virtually, just like in real life, is also an opportunity to start a conversation. Tell me what you like about this episode. I'd love to hear from you. If you've heard several episodes by now and you like this show, consider becoming a sneaky art insider. Insiders commit to supporting my work at the cost of just one cup of coffee per episode. In exchange, they get a host of privileges, as the word insider implies. There is an exclusive weekly newsletter with lots of bonus materials from the show, such as early access to certain episodes, expanded ideas on the kind of things that I'm thinking about from these conversations, and bonus audio content that is not even released to the general audience. For more details, to maybe see some of these issues that I've brought out of the paywall and the chance to sign up, follow the link in the show notes. Okay, with that out of the way, let's get into this second conversation. We begin with catching up on the little things, because Paul and I haven't spoken in many, many months. Our conversation goes from Paul's workout routine and how it literally and metaphorically revolves around his kids to the depiction of dinosaurs in pop culture. Before we get into the meat of this conversation, which is concepts of creative entrepreneurship, achieving a work-life balance, and making content across multiple platforms. Towards the end, I make an impassioned pitch for Paul being on TikTok. And I'm delighted to report that he has since joined the platform and is doing super well on it. Let's get started with the second conversation. Good morning. How are you doing? Good morning. I'm great. How are you? I'm good. I actually just, uh, I've been avoiding the gym for a few days because of various reasons, just because it's gray outside. That's a nice excuse sometimes. But this morning I kind of squeezed it in. I thought, okay, I'll go quickly right before I have to talk to Paul and that'll get me in quickly. It'll get me out quickly. I have this problem that if I don't go right away in the morning, I just don't go at all the rest mm-hmm. of the day. How how are things with you? You've been in this fitness thing for a year now, and I've I've had a little bit of a lapse in the last few months. Mm-hmm. Um, so I I I put back. I I lost at one point. I'd lost over sixty pounds, and I think I put back about fifteen. So um, I need to get back in the swing of things. But the last couple of nights, I've been going. My fitness regimen is usually in the evening, I'll go on a long walk or a jog. And and if the weather doesn't cooperate, I, I'll jog around my kitchen island, which <laughs> I, cause I, I have like four goals. Usually I try to meet, which is I try to break a thousand active calories. I try to uh, hit 10,000, actually 12,000 steps is what I'm trying to do usually daily. And then, um, you know, 30 minutes of active exercise, which is, you know, rather than sort of passive calorie burning, it's like heart rate elevated, Mm -hmm. et cetera. And um, whatever else is on my Apple Watch. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah. You have to stand for 12 hours. Oh, wow. Well, not stand 12 hours continuously, but you have to stand at least once per hour for 12 hours. Okay. 
All right. That's a little more reasonable. So your kitchen island is like a hippodrome and you're doing laps. That's right. That's right. Sometimes I go so fast. I, I'm, uh, I'm careening off of the cabinets and now I'm just... <laughs> do you do you change directions ever? Because otherwise, you know, like the NASCARs, you'll start having one leg stronger than the other. For some reason, I try to, but I'm way less comfortable uh, going clockwise and I'm much more comfortable going counterclockwise. I don't know what it is, but yeah. my ankle, <laughs> it's such a strange, I, this is such a strange activity to be doing, but then I heard other people do this too, to get to, if they're close to finishing their steps or something like that. So, and yesterday I did 15,000 steps. All right. But that was, a. I, I walked all the way to the grocery store and back and that was, a you know, a, a nice outdoor. Yeah. And in the evenings, I'm guessing because you've tired out the kids and now you can go? Yeah. Assuming that I don't immediately go and lay down and accidentally fall asleep, which is <laughs> often the case. So. Yeah. It, it used to be this way with me that I could only do these anything physically strenuous in the evenings. I felt like I need the whole day in order to gather the strength to do it in the evening. But somehow it's just completely flipped. And now... I feel like if I don't do it in the morning, by the end of the day, I'm just not, I don't care anymore. I'm not going to do it. So I have to do it first thing. Like I literally it's okay. There's a, there's a coffee, but after the coffee, it's the first thing in the morning. I'd love to start doing it in the morning. Um, right now though, it's just the, you know, the, the realities of getting two children ready and all those things. My wife and I share those duties. So my wife goes downstairs and gets breakfast ready. And then I wake up the kids and get them dressed, brush their teeth, um, you know, comb, brush their hair, all those things. And they have evening baths. So, um, and the six-year-old is like my three-year-old. She's like any younger child. She doesn't understand the concept of how luxurious sleeping in is. So she gets up, but the six-year-old is like, you know, five more minutes. She's already that way, you know, which also how I am. So <laughs> I blame myself. Yeah. So uh, I guess, uh, like, I think this is a good way to start. Like, I'm curious to know how you fit the creative hours and the, the you know, creative slash work hours in between these various duties. How does a typical day work out for you? Well, right now, I would, if I weren't talking to you, this would be Mondays and Wednesdays are the days that both kids are in school. Um, and so this is the first time in my life since having kids where both children are out of the house at the same time and I have free time during the week. Um, because typically uh, before a pandemic, I would go out in the evenings uh, to a coffee shop or something like that. It's a, which, you know, there were a handful that were open late back then these days, both because of pandemic and uh, staffing shortages, et cetera. Um, there aren't any really late night coffee shops and I, and I would prefer to not go and, and draw indoors that often. Um, so prior to that, and then also on the weekends, I would go out, you know, on a Saturday typically. And so I still have a Saturday, um, usually for a half day and I'll go out Saturday morning and and do a sketch but now i also have a monday and a wednesday for a half a day um that i can sort of i'm free to go out and sketch and 
I had kind of started doing this prior to the pandemic, but because of the pandemic and the circumstances, uh, and we we probably spoke about this on our last conversation, but uh, that's when it really ramped up getting into sketching cars and outdoor environments like, um, you know, junkyards or um, there's a railway museum that I like to go to and sketch over there. So. Right. And is, is work and uh, the creative hours and the work hours, are they uh, primarily just the time you spend drawing or is there some kind of time that you, uh, that you would think of as work, which is not drawing at all? Absolutely. Um, I, every now and then I do other work I need to do more of, but I usually put that off until it's inconvenient for me to be drawing, <laughs> um, which is like, if I'm shipping something, I got to pack things up to get them shipped or answer emails or, you know, another correspondence. Um, lately I've, I've been, I, I prepped an online course. So I had to do a lot of um, prep for that in terms of thinking about the content and laying it out and how do I want to organize this and blah, blah, blah. Um, what else? Any number of other things preparing social media posts, <laughs> you know. Yeah, yeah. You have to think out those those John Hammond hit tweets. Oh, hit no. Tweets. <laughs> the, the ones that are related to art. <laughs> those, <laughs> those, those really one-off nonsense tweets, that's because I'm not doing something I'm supposed to be doing, like getting ready to, to speak to you on a podcast. Yeah, uh, actually, uh, the subject of Jurassic Park does bring me back to something we spoke about the last time. And uh, we were talking about dinosaurs and drawing dinosaurs and how that kind of curiosity made you so excited about uh, drawing as well as, you know, kind of tying in something that you're interested in, but also tying it up with another thing that you're interested in. So dinosaurs and art. Um, now, I was just thinking on that subject about so firstly, let's let's do the dinosaurs because I have multiple uh, things to ask you about this, funnily enough. Sure. But about dinosaurs. So um, like now that if you, uh, now I asked you if you've recently rewatched the movie and you said not, but I was just thinking this movie came out in the early 90s. How, how have things like, have has our conception of what dinosaurs looked like changed like substantially since then? Uh, yes. And... I mean, at least in terms of popular culture, there's a it's a it's an interesting thing, and it's one of the um, and people in paleontology community and and paleo art circles, which I barely skirt the 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 borders of the edges of. I'm I'm a very casual um, in terms of I don't have any professional training or anything like that. I just read sometimes about things happening in paleontology, and I like to sketch dinos. But um, there's a, a, a the paleontology and paleoart community has a tough time overcoming the, this paradigm that Jurassic Park and the whole franchise and the subsequent sequels have established in terms of how these creatures look, and particularly um, you know the Velociraptors and the smaller dinos, which even at the time the first movie came out almost 30 years ago, uh, people were fairly certain would have had feathers. Uh -huh. And there was a book, Predatory Dinosaurs of the World, that came out in 87, 88 with feathered velociraptors. There were pub papers published prior to that in the 70s with 
feathered dinosaurs. So um, it's not, you know, it's, they're still not feathered in the movies. And so a lot of people in the paleo community are having a tough time trying to, they're fighting for space and attention to remind people that this is as close to a certainty, scientific certainty as it gets in the study of paleontology and evolution. Um, but the movies, because the movies want to kind of, they want to keep that continuity from the original. So the raptors have to stay the way they looked 30 years ago. Right. And, and the T-Rex has to look like it did 30 years ago. And, you know, so they, um, they're reluctant to change anything on that front. And there's no other large pop cultural uh, destination to see dinosaurs, you know, on the big screen with millions of dollars of special effects behind them. So if you, you know, you watch the Discovery Channel or National Geographic or something and you'll see those images, but they don't have the the cultural cachet that a Jurassic World or a Jurassic Park has. And so there's that, uh, you know, competing for attention with this huge, you know, pop culture juggernaut that I think paleo artists are always finding themselves in that because they also appreciate the attention that it has brought to the community. And so I don't think, you know, like many people who got into paleo art would, would even have done so if not for the movie and the, and the book even prior to the, the movie. So it's a catch 22, you know? Yeah. Yeah. True. I'm, I'm smiling for two reasons. Firstly, I'm thinking of velociraptors with feathers and I think at least part of the reason they wouldn't want to change that image in the movies is it makes them distinctly less threatening to look at. Well, and that's that's a message that I think a lot of people hear. And and the paleo artists would say, so what about um, a Lammergeier, which is this giant monkey-eating eagle or whatever? What what about those is lot not threatening? They're covered right. with feathers. Or what yeah. about, you know? <laughs> and then, of course, yeah. if you've ever been kicked by a cassowary or an emu or something like that i don't think you'd say i have not, not had that pleasure yet they're you know they can they can seem threatening um even if they do have a sort of a kind of a dumb look sometimes. yeah that, that's a fair point the other reason i was smiling was that i was thinking of paleontologists and paleo artists fighting for fair representation of velociraptors <laughs> it's a funny thing because like um I'm not sure if you know, this is going into bird anatomy, but if you ever look at a chicken wing, um, there's these little bumps on the, um, let's see, the ulna. And those are called quill knobs. And those are where, those are the anchoring points for the quills, which are the, the flight feathers of birds. Those are the really heavy duty feathers, not the fluffy parts of the birds, but the ones that, you know, the actual long feathers. Mm -hmm. And Velociraptor fossils have quill knobs on them. There's no other biological explanation for what they could be other than that the, they had feathers coming out of their arms. Um, so it is, you know, it's definitely a, a case of this is a, a virtual scientific certainty, but we can't can't seem to get over that hump, that pop culture hump. And it is it's definitely it's a challenging image for a lot of people who grew up with the scaly uh, dinosaurs of the past 75, yeah. 150 years, whatever it is. Yeah, yeah, that's so true. 
Um, so, uh, okay, moving away from dinosaurs, um, <laughs> I, I, uh, one of the reasons why I wanted to have this conversation with you was that firstly, now I'm about 30 something episodes in and I've had my episode lengths steadily grow longer and longer. <laughs> and we've reached a point where two hours or two and a half hours is when I feel almost like I'm warmed up. Now, this is where the good stuff is. So I look back at my early episodes and you were the first person I spoke to and it feels really wrong that we spoke for only 90 minutes and I feel like there's so much there's so much good stuff to extract that I wasn't equipped to kind of reach towards. Oh, I don't know. I think I don't know how much there is to me. <laughs> Probably not as much as you'd think. But uh, I'm still I'm I'm happy to talk. I just don't know if you're mining any depths or you're just getting more of the same. Uh, well, so for this conversation, because of course now we're talking in two parts, so it's not the same as having one long conversation. I felt like because I'm doing it in this way, uh, it might be useful if I had a few ideas to kind of ask you about. And uh, I had a few ideas come up in this conversation I did with Koshikuna and. I wrote them out in my newsletter as four big ideas that came from this conversation. And these are not really questions. They're kind of ideas and themes. And uh, so I don't know how I'm, I'm kind of figuring out on the fly how to pose them as a question. And I'll go at them one by one. Um, so one of them, the first one is something that we were talking about because Koshia left her uh, her space in sketchbook school and then she decided to completely only do what she specifically wanted as an individual creator. And in this light, we were talking about ourselves as creative entrepreneurs and not uh, being sort of uh, understanding the limitations of the word artist and the added responsibilities of the phrase creative entrepreneur. So I, firstly, I just want to know what are your ideas or thoughts on this kind of term? Would you apply it to yourself and why and why not? I think I have a little bit of, a, the, I have the luxury of not having to support myself and my family. Um, and, and so in terms of my sort of going full tilt into the, the idea of being a creative entrepreneur, I can I can pursue things that I want to pursue and I can say no to things or decline things or avoid things, um, which it seems more and more lately, like the opportunities are finding me and I don't really, I don't, like before I might have had to have more actively pursued them and seek them out. And now it's, it's a case of turning down a lot of people. Um, and, and I think mostly by virtue of the fact I have a large social media following. So I think a lot of people see a partnership as potentially lucrative, uh, especially sort of online education um, people who are interested in, you know, let's teach a class or let's have you come and teach a class, which I've done a few of. Um, I mean, as an entrepreneur, though, I'm not deriving really a significant income from these kinds of things. I would have to be doing them weekly, you know, to, to even make them worth my while. And, and also 
travel workshops, which um, I think we spoke on this last session or maybe not, but last year I was prepared to do four or five um, travel workshops and none of which materialized, one of which was postponed till this year. And so I did it this past summer. Um, but the others have yet to be rescheduled or if, if they're ever going to happen again. Um, one of which was the symposium, the, the, the urban sketching symposium, but also um, a, a sort of a private workshop um, in New York and one in Mexico. Um, the one in Wisconsin, which ended up happening, and then another a 10 by 10 uh, workshop in San Francisco. So, and the other thing is that I don't actively pursue, not only because I, I don't have, I, I have the luxury of not having to, to make this income, but also because I have a job. Legitimately do, you know, I do take care of kids. And if, if I'm going to be teaching, especially if I'm traveling to teach, but even with Zoom workshops, scheduling around those things and figuring out how to manage my other responsibilities as a stay-at-home parent, it, it, you know, it's challenging. And so um, it's not entirely uh, a question of not needing the money because I, I think we could definitely do with the additional income. It's, you know, it, it's never um, something we would turn down, but the logistically it's almost too challenging to even consider in the first place. Um, for instance, um, the, the travel workshop that I did do this year in Wisconsin, um, a, a quarter of that, almost a third of that actually went to paying a sitter to watch my kids for a week <laughs> while I was out of town. And then another quarter of that is taxes. So it's not particularly lucrative to even do these things, considering the expense of making them happen for me. Um, and, and other instructors not, might not necessarily have that challenge. Um, so because Linda couldn't take off time from work, so she was still working. Even though she works from home, we need somebody who can feed our children and make sure they don't kill each other. Um, <laughs> And this was during the summer, so they weren't in school. Um, and prior to that also, of course, you know, one of the other reasons I canceled a lot of things and, and um, was not able to travel was our children were going to remote schooling, or at least our older child was at the time. And um, now that they are both out of the house, I can sort of start adding these things back onto my plate one thing at a time. And it's nice to have, you know, the, the ability to say, oh, no, I'm not interested, but okay, maybe I can, I'll make time for this or make time for that. And I know ahead of time, I'm already like, okay, I have a schedule. There's three days potentially that would work. And assuming I, <laughs> this is the other thing, and this is the most purely selfish and, um, you know, but I think you'll you'll completely relate to this. I like to just draw, and um, I I would much rather be responsible, as you're saying, like Kushet, like only to myself, and and 
drawing on my own time, whether or not I sell the drawing or make any money or I'm teaching or whatever. That is my favorite thing, my favorite time. So letting other things come into that territory, into that space, now that I've suddenly got a little bit more space to do those things, is I'm reluctant to do that. Um, you know, I'm reluctant to say, okay, I'm going to let somebody have a couple of hours of my time on a time, you know, when it's really the only time for me that I get during the week. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, obviously when you said, Hey, I'd like to, (laughs) you know, there are certain people who like can, um, uh, can ask that of me and I'm more than happy to accommodate and, um, you know, and Nishant, you and and a handful of other people, sure. Um, but more and more, I'm like getting protective of that time because it's suddenly, um, it's suddenly there, suddenly something I have. So, yeah, yeah, that that's a great answer. For, firstly, uh, I'm really glad to be in this uh, exclusive <laughs> club. <laughs> you're you're, you're but, in the elite. But uh, like, I completely. Uh, respect all of these uh, factors that you're naming because indeed I feel like a part of being an entrepreneur in this sense is to recognize the various obligations that are upon your time and your energies and then to find the solution to doing the things that and here we come to another interesting part of doing the things that do good for you So they are good things for you to do, but they also give you that fulfillment for that limited time that you have and sort of sieving through the various options, finding the thing that you want to do versus the thing you would rather not do. And at least with, with all your other factors and responsibilities in mind. So I consider that actually to be a very important part of being, uh, of determining your own, career or let's say your own work day in a sense uh, what are some of these so you ex- you sort of sort of touched upon it and tell me if i'm wrong but you sort of uh, touched upon that uh, teaching is not something that you would do as much if you had that choice is that a correct thing to say you know i mean between in the between the two styles of teaching that have emerged especially post pandemic um, I think I prefer in-person workshops mm-hmm. to teaching sort of this in the more passive setting of a Zoom workshop or something online um, because I, A, I really prefer to be teaching directly from life in the field. And these concepts are just trickier. They're more challenging for me to communicate effectively um, inside a, you know, my living room or whatever over a zoom call um you know you can assign homework and have them go out and try things and then if it's more than a one-off session if it's a multi-week thing or a multi-day thing they'll come back and then you can kind of critique and talk about what it is but you can't effectively demo like you can when you're out in the field i -hmm. see a lot of instructors do this and they'll either work from photos or um, something small some sort of tabletop scenario or something like that and um and I, and especially since i like to talk about trickier concepts that re- really require being act, really engaged with the space that you're in um and so perspective concepts that are you know require the sort of immersion um 
are really challenging in a Zoom setting. But even then, like the, the amount of prep and the amount of energy required to teach an outdoor workshop or, um, you know, an in-person workshop is, um, it's a lot. It's time consuming more so than just the, the specific time you're allotting to teach because of the, all of the, the energy that going into preparing to teach. And um, even though at this point I've taught many times, I always feel like um, I can't, and I know I can, you know, in my heart of hearts, it, but I always feel like I can't just completely wing it. I need to pin down an idea in, in terms of how I'm going to talk about it and how I'm going to, you know, break it down into smaller components, digestible pieces to teach other students. Um, and there's always those other factors that you can't prepare for when you're teaching an, an outdoor in-person workshop. Um, things aren't the way you anticipate they're going to be. Um, so all told, both of those things are less enjoyable for me than just going and sketching for fun on my own. Um, right. And, you know, and it's just the case that I, since I don't need to do those things, I'm not obligated mm -hmm. financially, um, you know. So when you're not incentivized to do things, they become more and more a, a pain in the, you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it's so I, I would as as soon just avoid um, using up all of that mental energy sometimes. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a fair point. So Kosha and I were speaking about this thing because of a restriction that was put in her life, which was as soon as she decided to become independent and do all of these things, there was the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And suddenly she was locked indoors. So she set herself this uh, very simple rule that for the next whatever months, she would do only the things that are fun to do. And in our conversation, as it transpired, we uncovered that simply chasing this, what would otherwise sound like not doing work, like not doing necessary, unpleasant things, chasing only what is fun to do every day, she ended up accomplishing a lot of very big goals. Like she ended up writing a book this way. She got very regular with her YouTube this way. And she sort of discovered a deeper artist in herself in uh, exploring herself through fine art and abstract art and things like this. So what you're also saying, sort of, uh, there is there is some kind of resonance here. And I don't, like the word fun sometimes sounds a little flippant, but uh, maybe the word joy is a little more uh, true to this feeling. And uh, this is how I think of it, that I am trying to, because I also don't have the the uh, the impending financial need every day to do the thing that will definitely get me X amount of money because uh, I am not having to uh, soul be the be the sole supporter of our family. Uh, so I kind of think about it as trying to find the intersection of uh, joy and work and making more space for myself in this intersection and trying to find more things that are in this intersection that I can do and a little bit of what you're saying sounds to me like that. How how do you feel about the the idea of doing things that are fun? I I mean I 
yeah, fun or joy, that, that's a great word. And even more so, um, as somebody who's been struggling with anxiety for, for some time, um, there is a peacefulness or it, it's, it's more the absence of some feelings, I think, for me. That's, when, that's where sketching comes in, is like the absence of the sort of dread that I, I can feel sometimes. And I can only speak for myself. I'm not sure how others, um, you know, would relate. But the absence of this sort of angst, this, this you know, you can put off the passage of time and you have these, you know, these sort of, I don't know what, what you call them, this... Um, contemplative or, or not even contemplative because I think my mind kind of turns off a little bit um, but it's quiet it's calm it's personal it's time that I'm not um, but as I've said before I'm not sort of beholden to anything else any other responsibilities for those few hours and so I if you want to call that joy or fun absolutely I mean I have fun too with my kids in a different way it's you know um, laughing and seeing them having fun and all of those things, it's a different sensation than, right. um, than whatever sketching is for me. But sketching is a way to recharge. It's a way to meditate. It's a yeah. way to be um, thinking about one thing, right. you know, or even yeah. barely thinking at all. Yeah, you're very right in that it's not the only form of fun or joy in life. But uh, what I'm interested in is that this is certainly at the intersection of joy and work in your life. Because whether you uh, go full tilt with some of the other things, like you might turn down a lot of other opportunities around being an artist out of choice, out of responsibilities. But nonetheless, these sketches, which you do because you like doing them, are also the part of the work for you. So you, uh, in in some ways, you are using them in 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 this sense of an intersection of joy and work because somehow they will turn into something that is fruitful for you. And I do have that in the back of my mind. There is this idea that more and more time will become available to me, and that I don't. We don't know the future in terms of our family and 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 what we're going to need in terms of income. Um, and every sketch, I understand that it's sort of, as much as it is something fun for me or a pastime, it furthers that uh, idea of my own, you know, as crassly as this sounds, but my own brand, my own, my, you know, my identity in social media and this and that, you know, I post these things and there can be little doubt as to why I continue to post them. It's like, I need people, I need to remind people I'm still here so that when I want this passion to bear more fruit, possibly financially, I'm still able to, um, to grab onto it. It's not, mm -hmm. you know, it doesn't disappear. I mean, would I be doing these things sight unseen? Yes. Cause I was before social media, I, I was doing them. Um, so I, but I don't know how much energy or passion or whatever I'd be putting into it. You know, that's one of those unanswerable things. It's like, would I have moved on 
instead of continuing for 15 years like I've been doing. Um, and I do pursue other things that are some more related to sketching and some less. Since I've gotten an iPad and I'm into Procreate, I've been doing these sort of more illustration-y things, these sort of just passion things. Um, you know, I do these sort of car caricature paintings, which are fun for me. And those are meditative, but in a slightly different way. I can sit on the sofa, I can listen to a podcast or even have a TV on in the background. And, and you know, and I'm with my family sometimes in those situations. And, you know, Linda will be in the same room. Um, and, um, and also, I don't know, I, I, like, every time I do something like that, I'm, I'm also going, well, is this something that's more like my future? Mm-hmm. What, where am I going? I, I'm somebody who, not a planner so much as I am a follow an idea wherever it leads. And those ideas I pursue without, you know, I'm not too careful in terms of curating the ideas I pursue. And I don't, if something interests me and I want to try something, I do it. Um, I just finished another, yet another wooden model, (laughs) which is another way I pass time. And it's something to do with my hands and it's making, but I don't have to do, there's a different kind of creative energy at work. And it's just following directions. I love the the organization. I love how complicated something is. And there, there's that feeling of accomplishment and having figured out something that is really sophisticated um, or requires a lot of patience. And and it and it takes skill at some point. You know, you develop that skill as I've been doing these bigger and, and more complicated models. So, um, you know, and I'm happy to just to go where any passion leads me. I don't, ha- I don't anticipate this thing is something that would pay me, but um, it's another thing that has a little bit of a relationship to those, to the idea of joy and creating for joy and right. making something with your hands. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, uh, what you just said about following things that are interesting and then even these wooden models that you're constructing it ties in so nicely with the second big idea that I got from my conversation with Kosher it's something I told her about when we were talking about chasing things that are fun and about how uh, careers and trajectories maybe trajectories is fairer to use as a word than careers trajectories uh, go in unexpected directions. And we'd spoken about this in our conversation as well, that when people look at, say, somebody comes across your work today, they think of, firstly, they have a static image of you in their mind. And as I've uh, further formulated it since then, is that they assume a straight line that you followed, that you must have started at some point in their mind, maybe at some talented genius artist kid who decided I'm going to draw this way and then they pull a straight line from that kid to this person that they now imagine you as looking at your instagram and this then becomes the trajectory of your life in their mind and we talked in our conversation about how that's not the case how we don't really come up in a straight line and we don't always even know which direction we're going and this sort of also came up in a conversation with kosher and i introduced this theory that was uh that was uh proposed or quoted or cited by uh, George R.R. Martin, the author of the 
a song of ice and fire novels and he uh, talked about writing fantasy fiction and he was talking about himself with respect to uh, jrr tolkien who wrote the lord of the rings saying uh, of gardeners versus architects and the idea broadly was that architects have blueprints they know all the materials they gather everything in place and they know exactly what the final product will be before they put put the first stone in place so it's a very deterministic idea of growth and gardeners have seeds they have soil they have water and they have optimism that it will become something nice and all they can do is every day put, put more water every day tend to the plants and watch them grow and there is some amount of pruning there's some amount of gardening involved but you don't get to determine the final form you don't have a blueprint of exactly how something will how the garden will look so he was talking about writing fantasy fiction and saying that he's a gardener he has these ideas and characters who will do things but he doesn't know exactly how it will end he doesn't predetermine that but i was thinking about this with respect to artistic careers that there are these things we like to do and a, lo- a lot of what you're saying is about that that there are these things you like to do and you're following them and there is the faith that they will lead to something good or they will lead to just fun or they will that it's just fun to do this and you don't always necessarily have a fixed idea of how you want something to work out in the future with it and i was thinking about this just now with you you mentioned this with for your career for the kind of art you do but uh, and the ipad art is also fascinating in this respect but i was also thinking about these wooden models because here in a in a micro sense you are following the architect approach and that is also fulfilling you in a sense that you're following a blueprint you're following a uh, using a set number of pieces to construct something that you have an image of already of what it will look like at the end and there is this joy to get also from following this approach in little ways even if not in big ways and yeah and and i think that at, at the micro scale sure it's like that but on the macro scale it's sort of a i think of where does this lead me and i you know i one of my other passions is woodworking and it's like well what would it be like to to design or make something like this from scratch or what would it be like to uh what other kinds of models can i build what other things are out there i've seen these like sophisticated um engine models where it's like oh it's a real working engine blah 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 oh, that would be interesting to do and then it's like oh well would that lead to working on cars because i have this superficial or maybe sort of visual or aesthetic interest in cars but i've never had this mechanical interest in cars and i'm like but this is kind of like having a mechanical interest and is that going to lead to something so i think on the macro even though sort of this specific task is like an architectural task um the 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 path that this is a part of this is a little node along might be completely it's it it'll make sense in the long run but it might not just be make every single model in the line of this particular manufacturer and then you're done kind of thing it might lead to well do i am i mechanically inclined i don't even know uh, and so, and then in terms of that garden analogy, I like that, but there's also some limits to that analogy, I think, in that, yeah, you, 
I, depending on how you cultivate and, and the care put in or whatever, yes, you could get a perfect rose bush or beautiful tomatoes. Um, or you might have a lousy year uh, due to external forces. Or you, you just might not have gotten a good crop this year for whatever reason. Uh, or you didn't water enough or, you know, this and that. And you got some lousy tomatoes or, your you know, your roses are underwhelming. But you're never going to plant tomatoes and get roses. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. um, and so there is a little bit of a, a predictability. I mean, it's limited, but in terms of gardening, there is a there is a goal and it's... Um, and it's finite in, in terms of the possibilities. Um, and I think writing, though, the way George R. R. Martin writes or somebody, I think the goals are even a little, I mean, the possibilities are a little broader. Although I do like the idea, the, the, the idea that you write these characters and you have an idea how these characters behave. So it's almost like setting up dominoes. They're going to do what those characters are going to do. You might not know it yet, but those characters, they almost now have a little bit of autonomy themselves mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. you've invented them and you you know what they're good, capable of doing and what they're not going to do um and i do like that i like those the the machinations the unpredictability of like okay i've set up these characters it's like putting i don't know um i i can't even think of another analogy but it's setting up things and seeing what happens to them when when you like little clockwork uh, figurines or something. Well, what do they do once you let them go? You know, um, but I, I, another analogy I've heard is that you're on a bus and you don't know where the bus is going. But if you stay on the bus long enough, other people are on that same bus ride as you. And you didn't, you didn't look at the destination when you got on, you blindly board the, the bus other people will eventually get off the bus. And at the end of the line, wherever that is, you might be the only person left on that bus. And that bus was your path. That bus was, you know, as long, the longer you stay on the bus, the, the, the further away and the, the stranger the destination might be. Um, but you're not driving the bus. So you, but you chose the bus to get on. You don't quite understand the destination. I can't remember the rest of this analogy, but I, I also I've always liked that one too, which is you got to stay on the bus though. If you get off the bus, you're becoming a little bit more deliberate and deterministic, and because you can see what's out the window, and you can say, okay, I like where I am here. This is where I stop. And um, some people, I think that's fine for some people, and and then you might get on another bus from that spot and get, that goes somewhere else, but has a relationship to that stop. So, um, you know, I, I feel like I'm on a bus and I don't know the destination, but I know that if I stay on, something interesting is going to happen. And hopefully, um, you know, it's not, uh, not going to crash. <laughs> hopefully you get to drive it for a little bit too. <laughs> well, yeah. And I think the longer you stay on, the more you become bonded with the idea that you're driving the bus the more it becomes that yeah and you get to say driver stop here or driver take a left driver take a right uh when you're the only person on the bus you become uh you have a little bit more control over what the driver or the bus itself is doing i suppose you know because you're not part of a community that's 
helping shape that direction. Um, so, you know, like I, but I'm in an urban sketching community and writ large, if you really step back and take a macro look at what I do versus other urban sketchers, it's not extraordinarily different. Everybody has a little bit of a difference. And I, sometimes I feel like these, these, these crises of identity where I'm like, okay, where do I fit in as an artist? Not just as an urban sketcher, but as an artist, what kind of work do I do? Is it fine art, gallery art, which is definitely a goal I once had. I want to show in muse, you know, in galleries and maybe be in a museum. I want to have these nice oil paintings. Uh, it involves going to openings and making connections with people in that community, and 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 studying what those people do and and how you fit in. And then I found urban sketching, and it was like, okay, I can do this too. But it definitely brought a lot of that with me to this, you know. And but then I have other interests too. And and I found that as I posted my urban sketching online, there are urban sketchers in the urban sketch community who it seems like that's that's their home in in social media is the other urban sketching community, the rest of it. But here I, I found like I don't know what it is, but there's a lot of people from visual development gaming and animation to follow me for some reason. Or there was a lot of there's a lot of people from the fine art community to follow me. There's a lot of people from illustration and um, and um, you know character design or concept design or whatever. And so I, I'm not trying to say oh I have a really broad appeal necessarily, but I'm saying that's interesting. The people that I've picked up on my work and I've connected to their communities too, and then I draw a little bit from that and a little bit from that and whatever. Um, and so I don't, sometimes I don't know, okay, well, where would you put me where, and do I need to be in a place? Um, you know, I, I, I don't know why I, I, f I feel like I need to know the answer to that question. Cause it's probably pointless, but I I'm like, I don't quite feel like sometimes I'm an urban sketcher, urban sketcher, you know, with a capital U or whatever. And I don't feel like I'm a part of animation or comic books or anything like that. I don't really do those things. And I don't feel like I'm part of that fine art community either. Yeah. You know, so it's, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm on my own bus. I think that curiosity is very interesting because uh, it's sort of like, uh, I remember when we started speaking, you were a little hesitant to use the word brand when speaking about your work and speaking about, you know, the Instagram channel as it appears to someone. But uh, like, and I feel like that hesitation is misplaced. And I feel like part of what you are asking is such a valid thing. Like, I want to know, uh, like, it, it's, a, it's a need for more uh, deliberate direction making in a, like, sort of uh, carrying on with that bus analogy. But um, it's also about uh, like, these labels are evolving over time. Like the idea of what an artist meant has changed since the time that you joined art school and what an artist can do and who an artist can appeal to has completely transformed in the last 10 years. How an artist can make money has again completely transformed in the last two years. So 
uh, I'm a little curious about this. So maybe we should go into it a little more. How has your idea of being an artist changed over time? Like how did it, what did you think initially when you just say, perhaps when you entered uh, art school about what is it to be an artist? What are, what is the list of things that you need to care about or you need to, uh, you need to sort of know about yourself and how has that list changed now? I think early on, at least it was a, it was a process of learning media and formal concepts. And it was very much gathering information and developing skills to do those things. And while I'm not ever happy with like, or satisfied, I should say, with um, my skill set, and I always want to develop it, improve it, and learn more things. I've also I, I can understand that that's not developing as quickly as it was early on, and so that those those developments come, you know, at the pace that they come, and I pursue them as I can. But what has happened in terms of I don't know where I fit in, and as and, and sort of the the landscape of art, whatever that means, um, is that, yeah, absolutely. Everything is sort of opened up. The potential for things that I can do feels much broader than it did early on, both in terms of like allowing myself to think about doing other things. It was something that there were definitely other things I could have done, but I didn't, I had a very narrow set of goals, a very narrow uh, di- direction I wanted to be pursuing. And now, now, so now both my attitude about, well, no, this would be a fine way to do this. This would be a fine way to make a living or to think about myself as an artist. Um, and then just the nature of people consuming art has completely changed. The nature of not, not consuming just in terms of paying for art, but also just viewing it. Because I think I'm an art consumer. I love to look at art. And if I'm being honest, like most of the time, even before the internet, I still never viewed art in person. It was always in a book, you know, unless you go to the museum or the gallery, 99.99% of the art you view is in a book um, or on TV or someplace. I mean, there's all these other visual art forms that we sometimes don't consider, but most communication is visual. And so when anything is communicated to you in the form of an ad or some kind of a design thing, you know, that's a kind of art. Um, And now 99.9% of it is online, digital. And so one of the reasons I was never that reluctant to embrace going digital as opposed to analog is because the only person who is ever going to see my analog work is me still. (laughs) <laughs> unless they buy the art or see it in a gallery. Right. Um, so 99.99% of people who view my art are viewing it on a screen. Right. So it's not a tangible thing. They're not flipping through the pages of my sketchbook. So what does it matter to them or me if it was done on an iPad or it was done in a Stillman and Burn? Um, so that was why I wasn't, I was never too shy about grabbing a, a, an iPad when the, the opportunity finally sort of presented itself. I mean, I had to see it because I was worried about the limitations of it more so than I was worried about the lack of a physical um, 
manifestation of an art product. But having seen it, having, you know, in 2016, having watched Rob Sketcherman sketch people from life holding his iPad and seeing other people adopt it, I was like, okay, no, no biggie. For me, it was just another tool to make an image that people would, could see. That doesn't mean I've abandoned the other way either. Um, there, are th there are personal things I enjoy for both. And while most people might consume it all on a screen, regardless of how it's made, I still, I have to consider my own feelings. And I do enjoy the tactility, the feeling of paper and scratching a, a nib across that paper, uh, the, the heft of a, a sketchbook in your hand, and those rare moments where you do get to show somebody in person, you're out sketching, and they're like, oh, you're sketching, and yeah, let me flip through my book, and you can see the other stuff that I do. Great, great little personal moments that don't even enter into the larger picture that, you know, people see when they see that static image of me or my sketch that I've posted, right? Great stuff for me. Um, so, yeah, it's it's changed. Um, the possibilities for what I could do have changed. The, the way I've uh, allowing myself to entertain those ideas and and open myself up to growing in those ways that I was before. I think probably when I was an oil painter, I would have been a staunch traditionalist. And I was really into traditional academic painters too at the time. And I've opened my mind to just seeing the way people approach urban sketching, the myriad different approaches, your particularly graphic linear approach is so it's so bold and striking and it comes from a, a completely different mind that didn't grow up you know having been hammered over the you know in the head with the the art, the art ideas that i was you know uh experiencing um you come from a different completely different mindset and that's awesome we're seeing somebody like james hobbs work or um I'm trying to think of some really outside the box people. There's so many, you know, um, who who can go into these fantastic realms of, in terms of exploration of media and abstraction versus representation, um, you know, or caricature versus sort of uh, realism or, uh, yeah, you know, it's just sort of these sort of people who speak in terms of emotional approaches with color um, but it's still observational sketching too. All of those different things have informed me in terms of like, you know, what's possible, even though, and I, I having tried a few of those things surreptitiously, knowing that it, maybe it's not something that I could pursue, but it's something that I can appreciate. Mm -hmm. And, and I might not have been somebody who would have appreciated those things before. Right. Yeah. 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 To sort of take this point forward, uh, the idea of art has become very multifarious. Like there, there is no single conception of this is art. And often when we, when you study the history of art, you are faced with these idea, broad ideas of what is art and what isn't art and what is the art of so-and-so century or so-and-so decade. And it feels like now, everything in a sense is art and there is no uh, there is no set standard of ability or skill level or uh, education required or any of those things to determine what leads to art 
a lot of things have been uh, taken away from like a lot of power has been taken away from institutions and now it has been thrown open to the audience that now you get to decide this and i'm curious about what this does then to a person trying to be an artist in this system like there are these goals that you sort of perhaps set yourself there are these standards that you set yourself for how you want to work what you want to do and what gives you joy is part of that but also what you think is uh, is useful to do like is is part of that so uh, one way that i formulated this when speaking with kosher was that it's important now and this is also part of being a creative entrepreneur and how you sort of described that in the start about the things that you choose not to do so the articulation for me was that it's now incumbent upon us to think about the quote unquote the games that we want to play and there are many games and we can be involved in all kinds of games with their own rules with whether we are in competition with others playing that same game or whether they are uh, without a uh, competition of others but there are infinitely different games with all of their own rules all of their different playgrounds and we have this freedom to sort of choose the ones that we want to play and not play the ones we are not interested in um and i feel like what's really changed now and sort of what you're seeing also is part of that that things have changed from a zero sum to a positive sum mentality the idea that everybody is doing their own thing and a lot of different people can be successful without anyone's success coming in the way of anyone else's success i think that's part of being you know if you're in the same game and you're competing against someone else so how does have you thought about the the work that you're doing the standards that you're setting for what you draw and the kind of time that uh, that needs from you uh, what what is this i mean again what is the the game here have you thought of it, it in any way like it's that? such an interesting thing i think i try not to limit the possibilities of those things that i'm interested in pursuing and that's why okay you know i don't see myself as a car artist or this and that artist but okay i'm going to draw these things for a while until i sort of tire of them or become interested in something else and i never worried about that sort of uh pigeonholing me in a subgenre or some other um field or wherever i you know with with a new set of fans or something like that where i have to you know worry about um appeasing them or you know meeting certain criteria but you it's just you, you say about you talk about games that we play now and also uh lack of being beholden necessarily to an institution but that's not it's it's sort of like one institution might be gone but a, a new one can take its place easily and i think social media mm -hmm. is that <laughs> institution and the games now i have to think about our presentation right which is like okay how are people going to see my art a static image is becoming less and less um viable mm -hmm. it, it, it's whether or not it's the people making that choice or the institutions that facilitate my art being presented to those people now i'm hearing make you know make your tiktok make your reel make your uh story make your time lapse you know make your whatever um 
And you can see those, um, you know, it, the impact those are having in terms of what art I'm consuming and how I'm consuming it now. And like, okay, I see a lot of people making these choices and it's definitely uh, another way to consider it. And then it becomes a part of the art making. It really is. Now you have to consider it as you do the, in the process of the art. And, and the process now is, is sort of naked to the world. And I had been uploading time lapses for five or six years. I, you know, I, I went in 2014, I went and bought a GoPro because you get comments like, I would love to see the process. I'd love to see how this is made. Or even before I had a GoPro, I was doing some phone time lapses and some of that stuff. But now it's sort of, um, this is another instrument within the process, but it's not part of the making of the art, but it is because the art is now not the page with the drawing on it, but it's the video you upload to Instagram. And so this is, you know, the phone is now one of the art making tools because you're not uploading a drawing, you're uploading a video of a drawing and the video is the art piece, so to speak. It's the, however it's cut together. Is it little splices of real time strokes? Is it that ASMR, you can hear the scratching of the pen or is it some kind of funky soundtrack along with the, and then uh, don't get me started on the relationship between <laughs> when you upload a video that's a visual and you and you want music to accompany it because now it's really two things that have to mesh. And um, when I've done that, either I've done silent time lapses or I've made my own music on um, GarageBand because I'm I'm really reluctant to suddenly pigeonhole or not pigeonhole shoehorn in some other person's art. It means you know to merge with mine. And, and become a new product. Um, it's such a it's just such an interesting thing to think about. There's so many things to think about, and it's like pulling teeth to get me to do these things too. Because I know we've talked about this on Twitter that this is the new thing for better or for worse. And I think most of us have the idea that it is kind of for worse. Um, but it's, I mean, when I step back, I'm like, okay, is it really for worse? It's definitely different. It's definitely a big change. And I know cynically, I know like the reasons that I have to do this aren't because this is the, the, an organic way that this has evolved, but it's because um, people in charge have determined that the algorithm is going to favor you if you do this or that, right. Right? right? And so, but that doesn't necessarily, so cynically, I think the reason that it, this new whatever was chosen wasn't in good faith. However, that doesn't necessarily mean the products are going to be bad. People are creative and people find really creative ways to do these things. And I've seen some really brilliant art making that melds the possibilities of video and editing with the possibility with analog art making. Uh, I haven't made those yet, but I can see people doing this and it, it might be for the next generation. Who, who will who will think in these terms because those constraints, those arbitrary constraints that you didn't select necessarily yourself, I think they always beget a lot of creative choices. And so whether or not those, you know, I can lament the state of the industry and blah, 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 but it doesn't change anything 
in terms of what may or may not, I may, may or may not have to do at this point, or I can continue doing what I'm doing and not worry about, okay, yeah, my views are dropping or my hits or my, you know, visits or whatever it is, my likes, you know, and I can continue to do the thing I want to do because that's honest in a way, or I can say, well, regardless of whether I, I agree with the intentions of the people who've made the decision that this is a more valuable way of posting your art, I can give that a try and see if it uh, produces, if it bears fruit creatively. And it might. Um, so I, you know, it's such a, this is an interesting thing in terms of the games that we play. Right. Um, and I don't know, you know, I, I'm not one to predict it because I could, because 10 years ago, 15 years ago, I couldn't have predicted Instagram. I never even took photos with my phone of my art. I would make a drawing. I would go home. I would scan it, upload it to Flickr. And I was thrilled that 75 people liked it or whatever it was. You know, it was that was amazing. I was like, wow, that's a lot of people. That's more people than would see it in person, you know. And so some of the some of the numbers that I see on Instagram are flabbergasting and almost incomprehensible. And it's it's gotten to the point where I don't pay attention as much as I did when it first started happening. And I was like, I remember when my first I first broke a thousand likes on something and I was like, oh my God, what's happening? And then 10,000 likes. And I was like, 10,000 people saw this or whatever. And then I had something go viral. Um, I, I had something I shared on, I think on Facebook where it was like, it got a quarter million hits. Or right. quarter million I remember views. that. Yeah. I, was like, I can't, you know, and now I'm more than a quarter million followers. So, um, you know, at some point, though, it all becomes um, meaningless. It's just it's a lot of numbers and it doesn't um, you know, I can't have a relationship with that many people. Um, there's not a community there. There's a community within that that I know I see names pop up all the time. I like, you know, and I go and I like the people that I like and they like the stuff that they like. And sometimes that's my work and sometimes it's not. And so I see those familiar names and I engage with this smaller subset that I've kind of curated and chosen. Um, but at that point, you know, the numbers become sort of astonishingly uh, abstract and unreal and, 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 and impossible to, to really make sense of. So getting too bent out of shape about it, it's like, oh, I dropped from 405,000 or 305, excuse me, thousand followers to 304,000 followers in the last month. And I'm like, okay, sometimes they just purge a lot of bots. Maybe that's what happened. Or maybe people are like, I don't like what Paul's uploading and unfollow. Or, you know, or, or, or somebody who started a thing six years ago, they haven't logged in in so long that the it just it gets purged by the system. I don't know how it works, but you drop followers and it's like, I used to care. And now I'm like, I have 300,000 followers. What do I, why am, why am I going to get bent out of shape about a thousand people? You know, the remain may, may or may not even be real. <laughs> Yeah, no. yeah. A, a lot of the concerns you're sharing are, are, you know, so much exactly the concerns of most creators who have been in this thing for like six, seven years now because of how quickly things are changing. So being happy, I remember I used to make web comics on and post them on Facebook in 2010. And I would get 50, 60 likes. And that felt incredible to me. And that actually meant 
something different then than 60 likes do today. And part of like, as you mentioned, like growing the followers, now you get thousands of likes, but those thousands of likes have ceased to have any actual meaning to you. And that's another factor of what Facebook and social media have changed into because you know about the different ways that people use it. You have ideas of bots in our in your mind. We have ideas of these aggregator accounts who sort of follow you, hoping for a follow back. And if you don't follow back, then they unfollow you after some time. And a lot of people do these kind of strange, there are so many, uh, again, games being played which are not anything to do with being creative or being an artist, just financial games being played. And so we are aware that these numbers are not real numbers. And so there's this jadedness from it. And what you mentioned about community is also a very real thing. And I really feel like like we should, uh, not maybe right now, but we should talk about uh, the possibilities of how that is, you know, like the new wave within the creator economy so to say is about forming that community like having the real connection and ways to incentivize that that are good for the community but also really good for the artist who is trying to work on their own who's trying to work on their own terms rather than you know following the diktats of instagram and facebook and what they kind of demand from us on that subject, though, of what they demand, I'm uh, so uh, speaking about videos and how that video is itself now a product. The video is the art. Um, I have sort of pushed against it for the longest time because I don't like being railroaded into things. And like, no, I'm going to do it this way because I just I'm stubborn. I want to do it this way. How dare you make me do videos? And I've sort of come around that thinking because my resistance has broken down partly. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> secondly, I, I was thinking more about what it does. So the way we use Instagram right now, like we say that, like I, I said this, that I wish Facebook and Instagram were not incentivizing videos. And then I thought, what do I want them to do? What do I want them to be? Do I want them to go five years back? Was that a good place? Do I want them to go 10 years back? Was that a good place? And I couldn't come up with an answer of what I wanted them to be instead. So I started thinking more, uh, less with less of a reactionary way about what videos do. And I started looking into what TikTok does. And TikTok is super interesting and empowering, as I have come to now believe. So let's, I'll give you this simple consideration. Like when you're using Instagram, it's the same thing. And you can imagine this to be the case for the 304,000 people who are following you on Instagram. That if you really, 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 really like someone, you probably give them like one and a half seconds before you scroll away. And most people like a mere fraction of a second. And maybe you go to a caption. Maybe, just really maybe you feel like partly... Sometimes I go to a caption out of guilt that I haven't followed up on this person for so long. I really want to know what they're saying because I have ignored 10 posts already in which they were saying things. And then I finally read a caption and I'm doing this and I'm sure everybody else is doing this. It's not that these are bad habits or these are bad people. It's just that this kind of engagement is sort of incentivized on Instagram today. So what does TikTok do instead? Or what does uh, Instagram Reels have kind of copied TikTok and then try to put that into Facebook, into Instagram? What does that do? You give half a second to an Instagram post, but 
a good reel actually engages you for 30 seconds. So you have a 600 time uh, uh, engagement with your fans if you make a good reel. So if you make a good reel, you get to demand 30 seconds from them or even 60 seconds now because they've expanded that. And they are willing to give you 30 or 60 seconds of their time. How much is that worth now? When we start thinking about everything being only digital and everything being only uh, in this, like the sketchbook and the page that you drew it on is irrelevant. It's really about how you took the picture of it, in what angle, what kind of lighting, how you took that video and whether it was a quick cut of real-time moments, whether it was a time-lapse, whether it was set to music. All of that is the, if all of that is the product, then how much engagement is that product able to generate and what is that engagement suddenly worth? It's a very interesting question because um, if I think about those, like I've made a lot of now TikTok reels with the random music behind it and that random music is usually the pop music of the day and it's random only to me because I don't hear it in any other context except in TikTok reels. I don't ever listen to it. And I only know it in that 15 second clip, <laughs> but that is becoming the medium in which it's, I, I sort of think of it as a story and this is a story format, like just a way to introduce my work. So this hook from this song is the way that, the way that I lead you into what I want to show you. And sometimes it can be a little trick like, hey, look, no art. And suddenly, hey, look, art. Or it can be like, this is what I was looking at before. And this is what I drew. And just that transition, this story of you saying, here's what I was looking at. And here's what I drew. This, These two sentences, if you think about them in 10 seconds of time, what is the music that would accompany these 10 seconds of time? The music as a setting a role as sort of defining this is the mood we're in this is the way we want to do it so this is the mood you should be in when in accepting my art into your screen and i sort of think about it in these terms and it becomes a little more positive and the possibilities kind of grow in my mind yeah and i i have to confess that i have not yet started a tiktok account but i i do like the idea I mean, there is a kind of a, a, a wonderful thing that happens when you sort of have this synergy between somebody else's creative output and your own and using the mic, the, the music of somebody else to kind of lead people into a, um, into a, I don't know what it is, state of mind or a, a way to make them receptive to something else, to something visual. Sort of like a meme, you know, like if you yeah. use a meme format... Like uh, you made this meme about people buying prints. Now, the thing about that meme, the Star Wars meme, was that everybody knows how this is going to play out. They know the format. What they're excited about is what are you going to say with it? That's what mm -hmm. generates the curiosity. So once you use that format, you have this, firstly, this widespread acceptance. Everybody knows what the format is. Everybody knows how uh, the structure of this story that you're going to tell them but you are exciting them about the content of the story. What is Paul going to use this meme for? How is he going to talk about art in this meme after the first panel of whatever it was? So 
the TikTok reel is also a meme. There is there are a bunch of formats that people understand and once the music hits they know what kind of mood they need to be in to receive they don't know what you're going to show them that so yeah. it sort of makes them more interested in giving you that 15 or 30 second thing rather than the 0.5 seconds you could have maybe luckily got from them while they were scrolling past yeah and i do think there's a different kind of engagement now with video that is less superficial Although, you know, of course, that reading of that encoded meme um, is, a you know, it's usually instantaneous, right? That sort of, okay, I know where I am. I know what the concept, basic concept is, you know. And I'm always thrilled. When I post a meme, it's because I finally actually figured out how to use one correctly because <laughs> I'm, I'm old. And, um, you know, and that Star Wars meme, the, the Anakin uh, Padme meme where they, you know, where... Um, She basically repeats the line twice and he just gives her this dry look, you know, um, as long as it's a, you know, that one is a fairly easy one to employ. And I, and I had this idea that I probably even talked about before. That's like, it stinks that you do all this labor of making a print ready for people because they are like, Hey, do this, you know, make something like this. I would love to see you do this. And then of course, Nobody uh, shows up when you've done this and actually buys the print. And, and I can even point to a specific instance where somebody asked me, oh, do you have this image of a truck? I, I looked on your Society6 page and do you have this image that you drew? And I was like, well, I have this, you know, this one, but I don't have this one. And he's like, oh, I really like that drawing. I was like, okay, I'm going to upload it. And this was four years ago. And, I, and I, then I even responded directly to the person. I said, uploaded it. You can get it. I've still never sold one product with that image. <laughs> so that person ghosted me. Yeah. After, you know, and I have to go and scan. I scanned a drawing, prepared it for printing, which means right. you really clean it up. Yeah. You know, like really you're, you're going in with a magnetic lasso tool and you're like <laughs> cleaning all of this paper tone off of it. So it's really great for reproduction purposes. And you're scanning at like 600 DPI, making sure it's like this print ready thing anyway. And I was like, you know, and then other times I've taken informal polls like, Oh, if, you know, should I make prints of these particular cars? And I get like, um, this is where Instagram is kind of fool's gold. It's like, I got a thousand responses to a story poll where it was like, yes, you know, overwhelmingly, it was like 90% of a thousand people said yes. Now, have I sold 900 prints? No. Yeah. Yeah. You know, after I did that. So um, it was uh, so, and then I got a lot of responses when I posted the meme, like it was overwhelmingly positive. And then it was also um, people giving me the same, Uh, experiences that they'd had so but the meme i think people sat up and paid attention because they know the meme whereas if i had just tweeted it sucks when people ask you to print stuff and then nobody buys it people my, you might got a, a the traditional amount of likes and responses that i get you know but i wouldn't have gotten this shareable sort of encoded the analogy i like to make if i don't know if you're a star trek the next generation fan No, I I never saw it. It wasn't You've on never TV seen when it? I was okay, growing well, up. Maybe people listening will maybe or maybe this just ages me. But so there was an episode where somebody this is 
30 years ago, this episode, um, there's a race of aliens and they only speak in this, um, these sentences which allude to historical events. So, and everybody knows what they mean because they know what happened in history. So this guy says, Darmok and Jalad at Tanagra. And everybody's supposed to know what happened with Darmok and Jalad at Tanagra. Um, and the episode is called Darmok. And so Picard, Captain Picard, is trapped on his planet um, with this alien who only speaks in these sort of historical allusions. Um, so it sounds like English, but his translator is not helping him interpret it because the translator doesn't, His, you know, they have those like magic translators, right? Right. Because it doesn't give him the context for the phrase. So he doesn't know what this guy's saying. Or, he, or another one is like Kimba, his arms wide. Is another phrase that the alien keeps saying to him. And he's like, I don't know what this means. And eventually he starts to pick up uh, the context. It's like, oh, he wants me to do something. And he's using this reference point. And their language had evolved to the point where it was all these references. Um, it was almost like this sort of historical pic pictoriography or whatever. I don't know what the word is. And I think memes are a lot like that in that we're like long ago they've now been stripped of some of us know for nostalgic reasons the origins of some of these memes like i'm sure you've seen the robert redford in a beard from um nodding right he's smiling and then at the very end he nods right um and that's from a movie that almost nobody i'm sure has seen which is uh, i had no idea that was robert redford it's robert redford with this big bushy beard people say oh it looks like um uh, Zach Galifianakis. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. But it's Robert Redford. Um, what's the movie? I'm trying to remember now. Grizzly Adams, I think is the name of the movie. And then there's other ones which are just picked up. They're they're picked from various places on the internet. Like, um, like there's this guy doing a double take where he's like, you know that guy? It's like a blonde guy. And he's kind of semi-smiling. And he's like, what did you just say? And it's just from somebody's... Um, twitch or whatever and it, somebody else was streaming a game and and said something funny and and this guy gave this and somebody else picked out just his image in the field of all these people watching and zoomed in on it cropped it and it became a meme and all these years later and it's such an interesting there's just anything and everything goes because there's an infinite number of ways to encapsulate a feeling or a uh you know like a reaction or whatever i think it's brilliant I think it's a new form of communication. I used to be like um, cynical about them. And now I'm like, this is something very interesting that's happening with language and communication. Absolutely. And it's worth a lot. It's worth a lot of study. It merits our attention. It merits more than our cynicism. Um, and yeah. Especially the way they're employed by people much younger than myself. Yeah. Like really even... Yeah. Even if, you know, you can take like younger than yourself uh, implies the, the change in the cultural context they have or the history they know. But say, I was thinking about this because I've been on Reddit for like 10 years now. And I was thinking about this a few years ago that, that you can take a meme out of its culture. Like, so something about like, like Star Trek, like a TV show popular in the U.S., 30 years ago and you can show that meme to somebody in India today who has no idea about whether it's about space or whether what is start nothing but they will get what that meme is trying to give them 
Mm-hmm. They will understand the context within which it works. So those reactions or uh, the double face palm of uh, uh, Captain Picard, all of those things are the the ones that work are the ones that are universal, that work even outside that. Sometimes they take slightly different meanings outside the context. And that also becomes interesting because that's also like creation of new culture because that thing was not intended to say this, but it's been cut and spliced in a certain way that it says something. Mm -hmm. And if you know the context, then it says something. But if you don't know the context, it says something a little bit different, but that's also something now. And, and they're, and they, they can, they comprise a a surprisingly sophisticated uh, level of information. Okay. So, you know, the dog who's surrounded by a fire, the cartoon Mm -hmm. dog, and he says, this Mm -hmm. is fine. This is fine. And I was thinking about this the other day. It was like, that dog is, what that meme expresses is, um, you know, it's more than just, it's, it's more than just, this is fine. It's inaction in the face of an urgent crisis, right? And it's so shocking how applicable that is to so many situations. <laughs> it's like, wow, you know, like there's some urgent, something needs urgent addressing whether it's get out of there or fix the problem and you're you're sitting sort of blithely um ignorant of the problem or pretending that it's not there but you're you 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 can't help but see it right and it's mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. that's a fairly nuanced thing to have so such a universal application and, and to be able to use it so easily so yes. quickly it allows so many people to express nuanced and complex things if they are, say, for whatever reason, they are not comfortable vocalizing or uh, articulating it in, in you know, in expre- explicitly in words. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's without language. I mean, it has language in it, but I doubt that people even need to, to read or to be able to read This Is Fine in English to understand here's a dog who is, I mean, it's, it's somebody who's not addressing this crisis, this imminent threat. Um, and, and it's it's so, you know, and it's such a universal thing. And it's so much more easily conveyed instantaneously with this visual than it is with language. Right. Yeah. Because you would end up using perhaps the same tired words, the same cliches. You would perhaps say them not so well. This lets you capture all of that together and in this exact light i give to you tiktok reels Mm -hmm. suddenly you're able to say like we see it almost as having to use video but we should see it instead as these are the millions of things i can now do that i couldn't do before suddenly i can suggest so this is something that i do like i show a blank page and i uh, i uh, pan up and I come down and it's the drawing. I'm suggesting, I'm putting this aura of magic around what I drew. And it's not that it happened in that light. And it's not that anyone is fooled by it, that he right. clearly literally drew it in a second. But the idea of art being magical is something that I get to convey in a little visual trick with a little bit of music to sort of amplify that feeling, to sort of orchestrate that mood. And that idea in its all its complexity is something I want to convey in that complex complexity. Like, I don't want to put it in a caption that art is magic or 
look at the magical way that art is created when you just look at something and then you draw it. Like, I don't want to, these are all crass words. They sound crass to me to put it in the sentence. Mm -hmm. But to play this little trick with a 15 second video does all of that. Yeah, and I've seen those. I enjoy those when you do that. And I've seen something else where somebody just dropped a whole pile of art supplies on something and then they brush it off and then the drawing is there, you know? Mm -hmm. And um, I am just not somebody who ever has the wherewithal or forward thinking enough yet to where I'm doing those or I would do more TikToks. But I'm like, I when I get in, into a drawing, I'm like, I really should be like taking pictures or whatever and like nah whatever <laughs> i just want to draw in, in, um, a, in a couple of years uh you will be able to mobilize your daughters to help you with this oh yeah oh my <laughs> gosh they'd be so far ahead of me they're already complete uh, what's the term digital natives so right uh I, even a few years ago even before i had kids i saw i remember seeing a video of uh, like a one-year-old uh, and, his, and th their mother was showing them a magazine and the the one-year-old was trying to pinch the image to make it right. bigger and smaller right. <laughs> and getting frustrated because it just, you know, unlike a tablet, it yeah. just... <laughs> I have an example from the opposite end of the spectrum. My, uh, this was, this happened like three years ago. I was at home and we were looking at old pictures. So I went to my grandmother's place and my grand, my maternal grandmother. So she had five daughters, including my mother and the, all the sisters. So my aunts were also there and we were looking through their old photos from like the fifties and sixties, my grandmother's old photos and my eldest aunt who is like 60. Now she was pinch zooming <laughs> with the photo without even knowing what she's doing. And she just did it a couple of times. And I noticed and I said, and she's like, Oh, yeah, this is because of WhatsApp. I thought I'm, <laughs> you know, she she thought she'll zoom into it like this. And it happens to everybody and how quickly we become digital natives, and how quickly we sort of the the new thing becomes the reality is really startling, but also kind of optimistic. It's also like, to speak to your TikToks uh, or your lack of TikToks, once you start doing it and once you... So I've sort of just now developed a rhythm uh, of how I'm going to do it and how I'm going to not let it interfere with my art process. So I had this conflict last night. I drew this thing that I'm going to... It's commissioned for somebody. And I kept feeling like I need to record this. I need to have a time-lapse video. I can't just draw it because it reduces the number of products that I make out of it. Like mm -hmm. I have the picture, I'll have the story, but that's it. I won't have a video. I need to have a video of the drawing. That's a third product. And that conflict was really irritating to me. So I sort of pushed against it and I was like, no, I am definitely not making a video now because I felt compelled to do it. I am not going to do it. So I didn't make a video of it, but I'm going to make some interesting stories out of it and some interesting reels out of it. So sort of there is a there is a space for this. And it sort of brings me to the last subject that I wanted to talk to you about. Uh, and I spoke to another in, on another podcast last week and I articulated it this way then and I want to use it. I said that the bad news is that there is no formula for success as an artist in the creator economy. And the good news is that there is no formula for success as an artist in the creator economy. So we are all able to find our solutions now and we have the tools to work in the way that, you know, that intersection of work and fun can be made bigger and more things can be brought into that little space.
So I guess my final question is, I want to know how you feel about what we are now seeing and what we are now calling as the creator economy. How do you feel about it? Are there any things about it that particularly excite you that you look forward to sort of diving into? I'm, I like that. I like that idea that it's, you know, on the one hand, it's hard to know what to do, but on the other hand, you can, you can get there sort of regardless. Um, I mean, what, one thing that has happened is I've seen more art now that is being made right now that wasn't curated by anything other than my own already, you know, an algorithm that responded to the things I was already clicking on. Right. So I kind of curated this art that I see, um, you know, whereas before I remember taking art history in high school and it was Jansen's history of art. And it was this Western um, biased male biased idea. And it was all hundred year old, whatever it was like this. And it was like a, a scant percentage of the art that's ever actually been made, of course. Right. And here I can, you know, I can follow thousands of people. I can see even thousands more people that I don't follow on a daily basis. All these different approaches to making art, to finding a voice, to being a part of this community in different ways. And a lot of, you know, a lot of us are, are, are intentional in terms of like how we try to participate in this community. But I don't think success depends on those intentions. Um, we're, you know, we can be deliberate, but I don't think, you know, cause you, I, and I don't think you can help, but be a little bit deliberate and say, well, I kind of want to fit in this space somehow here's, and it, and it affects your decision-making sometimes, but the things that you don't necessarily give much thought to can also affect how you fit into that space and how people see you and, and when people see you or that people see you. Um, and, and it's those sort of helplessness, you know, this is just who I am when I make art. And this is, these are the choices that I make uh, that are sort of helpless and not deliberate. And they're just a part of the way I think and approach a problem. And um, that's what, you know, gives you that voice that separates you from another artist. And, and, you know, then you kind of, you're, yeah, you're scraped along the, the whims of the algorithm somewhat. Um, and you may or may not show up to people. And I don't know how much, you know, so I don't know how much merit plays a role in your finding success and circumstance plays a role. I think circumstance has got to be stronger than merit. There's a lot of people who are very successful and their merit isn't the art, but maybe their entrepreneurial skill set, you know. And a lot of people who I think merit tons of attention who can't get any and despite their best efforts. And so the, um, the fickle whims of the algorithm, you know, are, are kind of at work in those circumstances. Uh, there, there are ways maybe around it that are inscrutable and that somehow I have discovered but I don't, I, 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 it's very hard for me to make a, um, a connection between my choices and why they have been successful, you know? Um, and it, and I'm reluctant to ever claim that I'm there for hard work or for merit and, and always appreciate the role of luck and circumstances 
in terms of anybody's distinction, especially mine. Um, so it's not, and, and, and you know, I, I hate to say it, there are also large aspects of anybody's success that have to do with privilege. And, you know, I mean, I am a cis, het, white man. So I'm at like the pinnacle of privilege. And then I'm experiencing by, by at least one metric, some level of success as an artist, right? I can't deny there's got to be a relationship between those things. Mm-hmm. So I, I'd be the first to point that out and say, hey, um, you know, I, I'd like to think people appreciate my work for lots of reasons other than those things. But where, you know, and, and it's, it's hard to say exactly where those privileges come into effect, but they do. The system is just sort of structured around um, helping people like me who are already successful, stay successful, and people like me who aren't yet successful become successful a little bit more easily. There just aren't as many barriers. And it's, you know, so that's unfortunate. Um, But there, you know, there are definitely other things there. I, I see a lot of people without those privileges making a name for themselves and, and, and experiencing success. And that is encouraging. I think I'd never seen so many um, people of, you know, color and, and marginalized groups um, as high as at as high profiles as right now in time, Mm -hmm. despite all of the forces sort of working against those things happening. Um, you know, the, the amount of trans people I see online, the amount of people um, who are definitely marginalized for so many reasons with a, a voice, a sizable voice, and people um, seeing what they have to say or seeing their work or seeing this and that, that's great. That's It's better now than it was, obviously, um, doesn't mean we're anywhere near where we need to be but i'm saying it better better now than it was mm-hmm. um for you know it's it, it we have so far to go but um and that's because like you said there are so many sort of conduits there are so many ways around some of those structural impediments to finding success um right. now the it's multifarious the way you can get there the way you can have a voice or a brand or a um, a presence in other people's lives. Um, the ways to do that are many, and they're only getting more multifarious, despite the strange um, what what despite the strange I don't know what to say merging of institutions at the top of these. You know, because you have Facebook, Instagram, WhatsApp as this one large arm of <laughs> how you get exposed, how yeah. how people see you, and then Twitter is and Twi- TikTok are these other, uh, you know, and and it despite certain options sort of falling away, but then TikTok emerged. I I can't say that they weren't a small; they're not some small independent thing. We know that, but. Um, they emerged as an alternative to the sort of Facebook monopoly on social media. And I think other 
alternatives can, assuming that they don't control the marketplace to the extent that it's impossible to enter that space, um, other places are going to pop up. We're going to find ways around it and we're going to migrate organically to those spaces and more people are going to be able to see uh, and experience success, um, hopefully. Um, so, but being intentional about it, you actually, I mean, you have to to pursue it in order to experience it. That's true, right? Because when the opportunities or those circumstances, the luck comes your way, if you're not ready to capitalize on the luck, um, you know, that's that's the only thing that's your fault. Other than that, though, if you don't experience the luck or the opportunities or whatever, and you worked hard, um, that is not your fault. That is simply the um, the forces that are outside of our control determining um, who gets a place at the table and who doesn't. And hopefully those forces are having less and less power over our success. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But... You know, the only thing that, that I can say is I was prepared when, but and but by be prepared, I'm all I'm saying is as simple, doing something as simple as continuing to make art. That's what I mean by being prepared when the luck comes your way. People who don't put anything out there and complain that they're not experiencing success, I see that. I see people commenting on my Instagram posts and say, come check out my page. And then I go to their page and they have three drawings. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I'm like, you just got to make art. Yeah. You know, I'm I'm not going to, you know, it doesn't mean you will find success, but you're not going to find it without making it. You yeah, know? exactly. If you don't have something to show people, you can't be mad that nobody's seeing it. It doesn't exist to show. Um. So, but those people are few and far between. I think there's way more people who are working very hard and aren't seeing or aren't getting the attention that they should, um, but more so are getting that attention than used to. And it's incrementally getting better. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think you just made excellent arguments for why uh, like taking advantage of opportunities that present themselves is exactly why you should, after this call, download the TikTok app. Yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, thank thank you. Like, you know, we've spoken right now for longer than we did the first time. And it feels like we're just, feels we like didn't even time, get yeah. into the conversation, like really into things. Like if we had spoken now for the first time, we would have had like a four or five hour long episode oh or God. something like well, that. Well, I owe you, so I owe you a third conversation then. One year <laughs> from today. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, so let's. Let's close this here because uh, I do have I do have I do have some ideas to share with you, but I don't think uh, necessarily these are the things that I want to talk about to you on a podcast. But uh, let's keep talking. But let's let's close our conversation with this. Thank you so much for joining me, Paul, for giving me your precious free time. I mean, we have articulated exactly <laughs> how precious it is. So I'm very grateful for that. Well, thank you, Nishant, for having me again, and. Uh... I'm loving how this podcast has developed and become this really incredible and impressive destination for hearing these conversations with so many different amazing people. And they also get to hear from you, which I think is a lot of the value of this particular (laughs) podcast. Um, So uh, I, so I don't think it necessarily would be the same 
podcast without your sort of helming uh, the conversations. Um, and every time I see some interesting name come up, I'm like, of course, that's a perfect choice. And lots of people uh, I wasn't familiar with. Mm-hmm. So, um, and that's the other cool thing about this is like the the way my own knowledge of the community is growing um, just by, you know, seeing them come up in your podcast and 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 uh so i'm honored and flattered to still be a part of the family uh thanks for having me